This is Alice Krieger. I played the ball green. And this is Neil Before Con. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Pod, the podcast that is analog and off the grid. I'm your host Craig and we are here to discuss the third and final season of Star Trek Picard. Joining me is a man who is also too old for assimilation. It's Aaron. Oh, am I? Am I actually a changeling who's just hidden here for some unknown, incalculable purpose? For some reason. The plan's so intricate that not even you know it. Exactly. I will continue to test your authenticity throughout the podcast. I don't think I'm Borgo, so you're probably okay there. We did something similar during Secret Invasion, actually. Trying to figure out if you were a scroll. Seems to be a lot of imposter stuff going on recently. Although, that's not out yet, is it? So the no. audience is appreciating that out of time again, as we are wont to do. Yep, time travel. We're out of sync with ourselves. Alright. So, Picard Season 3. Let's just start with some... Initial thoughts. First of all, let's gauge your connection to Picard as a show and as a character. You were on the season one podcast and not the season two one, but there's no harm in reiterating. I must admit then to the audience that I didn't watch the end of season two. So if there's any callbacks to the end of season two, I am definitely relying on you giving me that information, as you've already had to do with one question I needed to ask about the end of Voyager, which I also did not see. I don't think it was massive, but I've come back to season three of Picard because I was curious, because people kept telling me this was going to be different. If they hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have watched it because I'd lost connection through season two. It just wasn't meaning enough for me. So... I probably would say the same as I would have done if I could remember season one. There's a lot that I wanted from Picard in his final outing, and it wasn't something I got. It doesn't mean it's awful, but I'm in that same boat. It wasn't what I hoped it would be. And your connection to Picard as a character, then? Do you mean going right back to STNG days? I mean, I did watch that. Yeah, that was part of my youth. I'm not that old. I didn't see it. That was definitely one of the places I started. I watched all of Next Generation. That was my introduction to Star Trek. I knew of the original series, but it wasn't my show. And I wasn't one of those faithful people that said, you've got to start from the beginning. I didn't do that at all. So it was my Star Trek. And I don't think I really connected any more strongly with any of the spin-offs, to be honest. So I guess Picard was my Star Trek. I remember you talking about connecting with at least some of Enterprise. I did, because I really liked what, again, it was trying to do. But I had the same problem. When they opened up with Enterprise, and one of the first things they do is a political conflict between the Andorians and the Vulcans. I was right in there because I wanted to see what I thought had been promised, the start of the Federation and how the humans were going to get involved 
calm everybody down by being human because they had some skill, talent or characteristic that wasn't out there in space already and therefore were logically the ones to take the lead in creating a federation that you might have thought the Vulcans could have done because they had that skill set, but they didn't connect well enough with the other races that you might have thought the Andorians would have done because they were out there and involved with everybody, but they were far too carried away with their own might or power or whatever it was about them that stopped it. And this suggestion that they were going to come out and disrupt the order, but actually put it back together again in a better framework was really led in that episode. You two people think you're friends. Do you know what? We're going to gain both of your trust through a bit of honesty. Here we go. And we're going to carry on forwards. But it never really went that way as a show. So I could potentially give you similar things for Picard. And I know I have done with season one. What I thought it was going to be, what I thought it could be, what I thought it might offer me personally. So potentially, yes, I did connect with some of Enterprise, but not completely. But that would still leave STNG as my starting point. That would still be my Star Trek because that was my introduction to it. Even though Enterprise is a prequel to the original series, it is very much in the TNG era of storytelling. Yeah. It's basically Voyager, but with olden terminology early on. Yeah. But then when you get into the temporal war, and no, I don't want to see this. I don't need any of that nonsense to connect me to a wider story. You've already got a story. How is the Federation going to be set up? Brilliant. There's your arc. And it can be as many seasons or as few as you need, because you don't even have to show the setting up of an entire Federation, because quite frankly, that must have been set up and then altered many times over the generations that it was constructed and improved upon. So it just felt like a freebie that was thrown out of the way because time travel is cool, apparently, even back then. The problem with it is the creative well had run dry for the production team because it was the same production team that had worked on TNG right through to the end of Voyager. So there was very little left in the tank by the time Enterprise started and then they slogged on for two and a bit seasons before... They brought some new blood in for season three and four. And then it started to change a bit and it started to become the show it arguably should have been from the beginning. But we're not here to talk about Enterprise. One day we might visit it in some form or another. One of these days we're here to talk about Picard. My connection to Picard as a show is I was really excited for it coming back. Like with you, although I've seen all of Star Trek a million times, TNG is my favourite Star Trek series. I think Deep Space Nine is a better show, but TNG is my favourite and... I think there's always an important distinction between those two things. Just because something is quote-unquote the best doesn't mean it'll be your favourite. There'll be elements of something that means you might prefer it over the thing that is actually better than it. There was just a lot about TNG that just made me keep coming back to it, made me love it. And the prospect of getting Picard back, and I like the idea of him doing something different and being in a different place in his life. All the stuff that Patrick Stewart was saying in the run-up to it. And to be fair, I thought it started off really well the first Maybe half of the first season was really good in the way that it posed questions and set up these complications and so on. But then it just flew out the airlock by the end and became a mess of apocalyptic stakes and all the usual guff you get on modern TV, that kind of stuff. Mm. And season two was just abysmal, which is probably why you didn't finish it. It didn't offer me what I was wanting from the start, so that is a problem that it was never going to be able to overcome. But even despite that... I never managed to create an emotional connection or a connection to the plot that I thought was really interesting. It was a series of events with a bit of time travel again, and I just lost that connection. It was essentially two or three episodes stretched over ten somehow. Yeah, potentially. Because we used to do those stories in Star Trek, and we got them over with within an episode or two. 
the most you would get out of it is a two-parter or an entire film in the case of The Voyage Home, which again is essentially a two-parter in terms of length. Potentially, they really strolled with not having an arc for themselves here, which I still say I don't need if there's already something in place. But if you are struggling to find what are we doing here, your purpose, then having an arc to work to can really help you with that. And you see these not random but seemingly random characters or plots turning up because it must be a good idea and the use of the borg in season three which obviously we're going to talk about had a purpose no matter what you think about its execution i think it was an awesome purpose throwing the borg into season two that could have been any intelligent alien it didn't need to be them i know they'd set various things up but if you just go down to a narrative level did we really benefit from having the borg in season two not especially people can be taken over by other aliens time travel can be done by other aliens it didn't have any real feeling behind it it's not like the season three idea so were they during some of these early seasons just going that's cool that's cool that's cool shotgun effect fire it in it must be good because we've put all this cool stuff in. And we quickly realized, no, just having data, I've forgotten his name, Q. How could I forget Q? Borg. <laughs> it's one letter. One letter. Just by firing all these important characters in from before must make it good. The gumbo must be good with these ingredients. No, you can still cook up a mess with even the best ingredients. I'm going to let your spoiler slide for season three. We're still in spoiler-free section. But... Well, yeah. What can you say? Yeah, you've done it now. Yeah. And what you said means that I can't edit it out. Well, you could always bleep over it, I suppose. Yeah, but then it would become evident through context. Anyway, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> so season three then, what did you think of season three, since that's why we're here? I didn't lose connection like I did with season two. I have watched it all the way through, which means that I should be able to comment on everything at least. But it didn't have any emotional strength. I wasn't really happy to see things. I wasn't emotionally moved. I wasn't upset or intrigued. It was a series of events that was kind of interesting. But towards the end, potentially, was I just watching it because it was looking likely I was going to be on this podcast? Maybe. <laughs> Add that to the list of reasons to watch things, because I like it, and I might be on a podcast. Someone's going to expect me to talk about this, so I should probably do the decent thing and keep watching. <laughs> That's why I sat through this two-hour film, because we're podcasting about it. I did watch nine and ten episodes, because online, some of the things I've been watching, people had said, nine and ten, mix it up. Nine and ten, do something different again. We think nine and ten are the best parts of the season. And I thought, well, if they have completely changed it up again, then I do want to see what they've done. It was the same thing that got me watching episode one. They say it's different. Okay, all right. I'll give it a chance. And it's only two episodes. What am I going to lose? And I do think that things did change considerably going in but not again enough to give me an emotional connection to any of it yeah the key factor in that is yes they changed things up in nine and ten but is that a good thing we'll discuss it because i do think that nine and ten render quite a lot of what happened in the previous eight episodes irrelevant which is a bad way to structure your season i would have been much more happy with this season if the reveals of nine had come in season three, and that's what it had been about. But it wasn't that way. No. My high-level opinion of season three is didn't really enjoy it. There was little bits and pieces that I found 
engaging here and there, but those were moments. So there were scenes that I enjoyed because people acted well in them, or they might have been quite funny, or the visual effects were good, things like that. There would be little smatterings in each episode that I would think, oh, I quite like that. But I think the overall tapestry of the season is very clumsy, and it falls into that trap that a lot of storytelling does now of mystery box. Yeah. We're going to spend seven episodes not answering this question that we asked you in episode one. And by the time we get around to delivering the answer, you're so frustrated by the repetition of the question that you just don't care what the answer is anymore. And the longer you leave it, the more amazing that answer has to be. Whereas if you answer it early, it's not relevant because what you do is then explore what that means Mm. rather than hinging everything on the answer to a question. And I think that's where a lot of mysteries fail. Yeah, they do. Because they don't have anything. It's the overuse of a particular tool in the toolbox. Everybody knows that there are different plot types, different structures. And as soon as somebody starts using a, quote, successful tool for everything, you come right back to your old saying, just because a hammer works well with nails, it doesn't mean that you should go around hammering everything. But it does seem to be that way with production and companies and producers. This was popular, therefore I must have 10 more of it. But obviously you need to think about it more than that. The legacy of Lost lives on. Well, maybe so. I know that Lost probably wasn't the first show to do that kind of mystery box storytelling, but it was the really popular one that everyone paid attention to. It's always the way, isn't it? Ten people came up with this at the same time, but no one was watching the other nine shows. Yeah. So Lost was it. Absolutely. Okay, shall we go to spoiler alert then and just dive right in? Do it. Absolutely. I've already gone there, so I'll have to time travel back to you. Yeah, you've already fired the first volley. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, we will go to spoiler alert. (coughs) Right, this season, the aim, I suppose, at least early on, was to sell it as the grand finale for the Next Generation cast. It's their final outing. It's the send-off they never got. Blah, blah, blah. Also, the opposite of what Patrick Stewart wanted the show to be in season one. And he was quite vocal about that before it came out. He said, I only signed up for the show because they said they wouldn't put me in a uniform and it wasn't going to be TNG season eight. And then a couple of middling to poorly reviewed seasons later, it's we're bringing everybody back because people might not watch it otherwise. Were you against this idea of reuniting all these characters or was it something that excited you initially? It's a tricky one because for a show called Picard, I don't feel like I needed or wanted it. But the difficulty that I had on top of that was I didn't get the show that I thought I was getting anyway. Well, not that's not true. It's not the show that I didn't think I was getting, the show that I wanted. So I was a bit biased against it. And then add on to that the idea that I really didn't like season two enough to keep watching it. I'm sitting there thinking, well, if there has to be season three, then I clearly need something else. So I'm weirdly neutrally on the fence about it. I wasn't particularly excited by it, but I didn't really know what the show was anyway. So I didn't have this foundation to stand upon and look in any direction for something that I wanted anyway. I was sitting there just going, well, if something else comes by me, I'll give it a look. So no, I wasn't excited, but I think it was so lost in the wilderness of plots that could have been and would have been and arguably should have been that I didn't have any expectations or requirements or desires at all. It's a very strange place to be in. I was really worried about it at first. The announcement was done on First Contact Day last year, so Mm. First Contact Day 2022, and that was when season two was still airing. It seemed 
weird. Obviously, the timing of the announcement was it's first contact day. We don't really have much else. Here's that's yeah. we're teasing that next season of Picard will be the return of all your favourites from the next generation. But putting it in the middle of season two seems to send that message of, we know you think this is crap, but don't worry, we're going to fix it next season. We can't do anything about it now, but we're bringing back all your favourites. We've heard you. Yes. And because they were effectively butchering some of the characters that they had in Picard in season two, including Picard himself, discussed at length with Chris in the podcast for season two that they needed a backstory for the fact that he didn't make friends with the crew. The fact that he's distant and keeps to himself is because of a traumatic event in his childhood. Mm. And that's nonsense. Can't people just keep a professional distance because they feel like they have to keep a professional distance? He's the captain of the ship. He has to be that distant figure of authority. And the whole point of him finally joining the poker game at the end of All Good Things was the idea that he now considers these people to be close enough to him to socialise with them. But there would still be that layer of respect and authority, and that was fine, but that's a season two thing. But it made me worry about how are they going to ruin the Next Generation characters. And to be fair, I don't think this season necessarily does that. I think some decisions that they make with some of them are quite weird, and a lot of them aren't really given much to do as well. As good as Worf is, what does he actually do in the season, really, in terms of development and so on? He tells you how he has developed, but you don't see him actually learn or grow in any way. I think that was the character's current image was the one I was most bothered by, actually, because all the other characters, I don't particularly hate anything that occurred with them, I don't think. But turning Worf into the comedy character to be made fun of really bothered me. And it's not even consistent. He's a figure of not ridicule, but stupidity in some cases, or just silly humour rather than him being stupid. Just didn't match up with anything and it wasn't the character that I knew and after really because the idea that they start with of him having gone through some philosophical change over this 20 or 30 year period I can't remember how long ago it was but decades long period yeah sure I totally believe that over decades somebody could be very different but it comes up more in joke than it does I had this realisation. Did he lose his son? Did he see the Klingon homeworld being ravaged by too many conflicts? Did he attain some sort of awareness for all the other people that he met when he spent time in the kind of remembers it, Gamma or Delta Quadrant, who cares, whichever one it is. But he saw so much of the galaxy. Did that have this lasting effect upon him to really change his perspective? Actually, no, it was just a good way of making silly jokes. I don't want to see that from that character, especially when he's trying to do serious things most of the time in the plot. That's a function of how he was done in the films, where he would be the joke. Mm. You would always laugh at Worf, that's why he's there. Then you have Deep Space Nine Worf, who's this layered, nuanced, interesting character that he never really had the chance to be in Next Generation, except from some notable exceptions. It's not that he never had anything interesting to do in TNG, it just wasn't as often. And in Deep Space Nine, they really took that character and evolved him. And yeah, it does feel like a bit of a step back here. Yeah, he comes in and he tells you, I've been working on myself, and I prefer pacifism to violence, but I'll still swing a sword with the best of them. Even that, by the way, is the worst of tropes. This is a trope so large and offensive that it has made it out of film and TV 
and into the gaming circles that I'm in, whereby somebody creates a character to play in a game and says, I'm this really powerful, awesome warrior with sword skills of a god. I never use my sword because I don't believe in it now. I'm, I'm a pacifist. And so you get to the first threat encounter and ask them, so what do you do? I draw my sword and kill everybody. What? So what happened to all that backstory about your philosophy and what you believe in? And it's the same problem with some of the people you see in films. And not is he a joke. He's been reduced to a joke and a trope. Yeah. Although Michael Dorn was killing it constantly. He hadn't missed a step as war, for sure. He was usually my favourite thing about a given episode. I couldn't enjoy it. Just his dry line delivery and things like that. The delivery, there's nothing wrong with it. It's certainly good. But what he was delivering was so annoying to me. I just felt so sorry for him all the way through. He gets one good joke, as far as I'm concerned. It's either in 10 or in 9, where he turns to Riker and says, just for a minute, I thought there was a danger we were going to survive this. (laughs) And it's a joke that's in character for a Klingon. They don't even actually manage to give him a wharf line. They have to result into a Klingon line to give him a joke. But it works. It's everything we know and it's everything that's suitable. And it doesn't rely on some stupid philosophy that he's not even going to tell you about. So anything beyond that, I couldn't enjoy. Definitely my most disliked thing from the whole setup is what they did to Wolf. Interesting. I like to set up a lot in terms of what he was doing or how he entered into the plot, because part of Worf's makeup was the conflict between his duties as Starfleet officer and the commitment he feels to the Klingon Empire. So it's that idea of, I have to choose between one or the other, and it would always be Starfleet because it's a network TV show on standing sets that you can't have a character leave for very long so he would ultimately find a reason to stick with starfleet it seems like the idea that he's resolved that by just doing his own thing he contracts himself out to starfleet intelligence but he's not actually at least as far as they tell you early on not in starfleet intelligence Mm. he's sneaking around or working to keep the galaxy held together through his actions through the things that he's able to do so that was an interesting setup and i like the way that he entered the story It wasn't what I expected, actually. But where does it come to? What does it all mean in the end? This is my problem with the story. Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't have any resonance. It's not something that gives him a stronger or weaker connection to Picard, which is my obvious requirement, given it's a show called Picard. We've already spoke about it's not. It's essentially a season eight of the previous show, but it's still called Picard, so I could ask for that. And then neither does it have any emotional meaning or resonance throughout. Why did you come to be a contractor? Why did you come to be a pacifist? Why did you come to all this? What are you going through? What does this mean to you? What does the end of the Federation mean? What does bringing the Borg back mean? Nothing. It's just an adventure that you have to go on. Essentially, you're training at Rafi. That's why you're here. But you could have done that from a distance. You could have just done one-to-one check-ins as if it was an office job, and it probably would have been okay. And it had the same emotional resonance. So it's not that it's not a good setup, but there's nothing powerful in it. Someone mentioned to me, he joins the rest of the characters, at least that are there, in episode six, and makes his presence known to them at the end of episode five. Someone suggested to me that the season would have really lost nothing if the first time you saw Worf was when he showed up on the screen when he hailed Picard. And narratively, that's true, because they don't really do anything of interest or consequence. All they do is they get that thing that can hack them into Daystrom, which you could say, hi, I'm here, I've got this thing that can hack us into Daystrom. I got it somehow. And then we'd be like, cool, don't need to know how you got it. 
you've just got it. Fine, you're capable of getting a hold of that. But then when you have in the final episode where Worf and Raffi have their parting moment, that does have a little bit of weight because you have seen them interact in those earlier episodes. So I bought into their dynamic a little bit because the given us it prior to that. I think the difficulty is, though, Raffi was pointless, as was everybody aboard the Titan in the actual finale. These characters can't be with the main table of people that you really love because they've got to do their own thing off near Jupiter. We're stuck here. What do we do? We'll fire on them. Does it have any effect? No, but that's good because they're actually humans in there. So I'm glad it had no effect. But equally, it had no effect. What do we do? We'll just flip in and out of being cloaked for a bit. Okay, cool. So it probably would have been more powerful for them to be just trying to not kill Geordie's daughters and having to find ways of dealing with that. But they have nothing to do. So even if they come back to her and give each other a pat on the back, shake hands, kiss of the cheek at the end and say, oh, we both survived. Yeah, we did. But neither of us did anything. Neither of us learned anything. So when they came back together, yeah, sure, they've got a good friendship. I did buy that. They had good friendship chemistry throughout. I believe that they were a buddy cop setup that supported each other well. But as you say, to what end, to what purpose? Yeah, and that's what was meant when I said there were moments I liked. So I liked Raffi and Worf saying goodbye to each other and declaring their mutual respect that I could believe existed because I saw it earlier in the season. That's good. But then, well, that's happening earlier in the season. They're not really doing anything of consequence while they're bonding. It's that double-edged sort of bad narrative, but good character stuff, and there's just no real connection. They don't seem to know how to do both. No. And that's a persistent problem. Sometimes these things seem to have freebies. This is a way in. This is something you can do. It's written into the characters already. Why aren't you using it? Why didn't Raffi and Worf have a conversation about their children? Oh, I'm having trouble with my family. I can't really connect with my child. My husband doesn't really think I'm right for the family and he doesn't really understand that I have to do this. My son has trouble with me as well sometimes. He likes me then, but you know, really struggles with it. Oh, that's funny, actually. I had similar trouble with Alexander. We had trouble bonding over this. We had trouble bonding over that. Oh, I had to get good advice from Troy, who might turn up soon. You can certainly start to link all these things in, but it's just like a freebie. Sit down, the bad guys are outside. You can't move yet. You've got to hide. Maybe that Vulcan that they did nothing with and eventually killed. I can't remember if it was a Vulcan or a Romulan because it was a no effect on me whatsoever. But you can't do it. So have, sit down and have a conversation. Why do you keep looking at that, Rafi? Uh, it's my son. You know, this, that, and the other. I'm having trouble. Blah, blah, blah. They could have bonded quite a lot. And then bring it in. Because guess what? Oh, turns out Picard's got a son. Here we go. Oh, right. It's just about family. It was there in the plot already. You don't have to hammer it that hard. Because then it might become too ridiculous to bring it in in every angle. But it was a freebie for Worf and Rafi. And it wasn't used at all. One thing that really frustrated me with Rafi is you had that scene where she talks to her ex-husband and he has information that she needs and he presents her with the ultimatum of you can choose your family or starfleet and it's a very difficult or it should be a very difficult choice she makes it instantly we had a bit of rafi's family in season one but it actually been so long and they covered it in such minor detail that practically forgotten all about it because the writers aren't really interested in Rafi but it's this one scene that's supposed to encapsulate this existential choice that she has to make about 
where her loyalties lie and things like that. But she mulls it over for a few seconds and then chooses Starfleet and then that's it. There's no setup for it. There's no consequence of it really. It doesn't come up again until the finale where her family tell her, oh, you've saved the universe. You can come back now. Everything's fine again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, as you say though, you bring up the actors. What I would say is, I don't know her name, unfortunately. The actress that plays Rafi. Michelle Hurd. She gave you some really pained looks when she's making that decision. I saw how difficult it was for her on her face. So I'm going to say that the delivery of it does counter what you've said. I do believe that it was given, but I will agree that it wasn't then used in the narrative. And potentially it comes down to an argument we use a lot here. Too many plots, too much going on. Wasn't time for it. Would have loved to have seen it. Yeah, because if the show was at all interested in Rafi, you could have an entire episode about her wrestling with the choice that she has to make. And Worf can feed into that. He's like, I too have been made to choose between two opposing things and it's never easy. It's all there. Someone pointed out to me, they put it more succinctly than I was thinking at the time. They said, they never dig deep, do they? And it's true. They don't. And a lot of the time they have all the ingredients there to do something and they just don't use them. It's really weird. You're writing Star Trek. It's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to explore these things. Yeah. But you don't. I didn't expect us to start off talking about Worf, but such is the way it goes. No, well, as I say, I'm happy to get that one in because that was my thing. You've got plenty of things. We'll certainly get onto your troubles as it comes <laughs> up. That was my trouble. In that case, I'm wrong. It did have an emotional impact on me. I didn't like that bit. <laughs> Let's talk about the guy the show's named after then, Picard. Absolutely. Yeah, why not? It was in all the trailers, and it started off the season with the I'm not a man who needs a legacy, which tells you he's going to get a legacy. Yeah. It's going to be the crux of the season, isn't it? Picard is going yeah. to realise that he actually has one when he doesn't think he needs one. I wasn't against that as an idea. As soon as Jack was introduced, which was properly at the end of the first episode, it was pretty obvious that he was Picard's son. But the show plays with that in bizarre ways because from Riker's point of view it's really obvious and he teases Picard about it a couple of times but the show treats it as a big shock reveal so much as it ends an episode with the reveal Mm. so it's he's my son and you're supposed to go (gasps) and then the credits roll but I was just thinking yeah I know it's obvious I don't think I realized I didn't get it but I wasn't really looking for it anyway because I wasn't massively invested. So I will say that no, I didn't guess it straight away. And yes, it was a reveal to me. When it did come out as a reveal, I wasn't shocked though. I wasn't upset or surprised or, oh my God, that's awesome. It was just another plot point. Oh, he's your son. Okay, cool. Yeah, that'll probably have some effect later on. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Although that feeds into what I was talking about earlier in terms of answering questions. Instead of waiting eight episodes to tell you that Jack's Picard's son, they tell you in episode two, and then they have the rest of the season to explore it. Yeah. It is a bit of a shame, though, for that, because the two things that eventually come up are actually perfect for a finale for Picard, and that's the Borg... And, as you say, his legacy, him having a son. Because there are two really important and emotional points that we see with Picard. If you want to go back to his history and dig them up, these are massive. And the episode where he has to go and meet his brother and he's on leave to recover from the Borg, it just breaks him. And it takes his brother's crazy relationship with him to, first of all, break him down, but also build him back up again. And he never recovers from it. It is a permanent stain on his spirit that he cannot get rid of and reconcile properly. Great. 
in that case, I want to see the Borg, not in some stupid Borg Queen episode where she time travels with them. That doesn't mean anything. But actually forcing him to face his connection to the Borg, perfect. Absolutely perfect. And then in one of the films where he's sitting down with Deanna or Beverly, I can't remember which, and he's sitting there going, can't believe that both my brother and my nephew are dead in a fire. And there's this big speech about how he just assumed that the Picard name would go on without him. He never had to worry about it, but he's always felt this weight, this burden, because his entire family spent ages, apparently, around every dinner table going, we are the Picards, we've been here since the dawn of time, and we should go on forever. And all of a sudden, he's faced with this big slap in the face. Oh my God, every ancestor I've got is now expecting me to carry on the name. And it's kind of too late. So both of these things are so massive that if you're going to give Picard a send-off and a finale, these are perfect. These are the right things. So I have to say, their choice of plot was awesome however the Borg turn up in episode nine and the stuff with jack is just a couple of conversations with a parent that the child kind of knew and then i'll get to know you we'll have a drink and we're relying on the fact we're having a drink and that's kind of what we're going to do oh but you don't trust me because you've been with your mother and you've not seen me and you, oh, you don't like star trek it's just this surface level stuff i wanted to see in episode three, oh my God, the Borg are back and they've been inside me all the time. Oh my God, my son is half Borg. Oh my God, everything I've ever wanted and feared has come together in one package and I break again. What can I do with that? I want my legacy. I want my son. I want one because I've got to because my nephew's dead. But the last thing I want is to carry on with the Borg because they were freaking awful to me. And suddenly Jack represents... Everything that is both the best of Picard and the worst of Picard. It is amazing what they've set up. But it's in episode nine. There's no time to do anything with it. They don't explore it. It has no emotional value. And all this amazing setup just kind of feeds into nothing. Okay, we'll just have a wee chat in Borg space. And no, it's fine. You're excellent. Oh, good. I'm glad you're excellent. You'll be my son forever. Hey, we win. When you talked about the time travel story with the Borg Queen, I assume you were meaning season two rather than First Contact. I do mean season two. I was talking about how if you're going to do something in the Picard framework of this send-off for the show Picard, which season two isn't. It's a quick tour around some of the highs and lows, I suppose. But again, they don't do anything with it. Mostly lows. All Q, all Borg, all Data. They just shotgun those in. It doesn't mean anything. Season three, this had everything. This was the chance to create something so emotionally brutal. And it would actually give even the actor what he clearly wanted from the I've had struggles with my parents plotline that you know actors are going to love. They're always going to love that. Oh, your father was a bit strange and mean, but actually there was something to him. Oh, you had trouble with your mother. She was actually the key part of your background, but she was taken from you. This is why you've been so busted all these years, because of your parents. It's everything actors are going to love to play. And it was right there. Change parents to children. It's the same level of emotional impact. I'm just so flabbergasted that what seemed more important, as you said earlier, was the mystery box. Hide this really excellent plot. Let's make sure that these amazing ideas we've had are seen as little as possible. Ooh. <laughs> what it probably is, is that people writing the show didn't even think along the lines that you're thinking along. Maybe. They just thought, okay, we'll bring the Borg in episode nine because it'd be cool to have them behind everything. It's Picard's 
most prominent enemy because of what they did to him, and that by itself will be enough to give us something to play with. But of course they don't. They don't play with it at all. And as you say, you have that idea of Picard's son is accidentally also a child of the Borg somehow because of just the way that these things work. And it just amounts to explaining why Jack has Borg values that he's translated in a different way, which I thought was an interesting idea. And I've always had this desire for everybody to act together, everybody to work together and common cause, all that kind of stuff. But they fail to notice the obvious connection with that as well, how the Borg are a dark reflection of the Federation. Because the Federation values are exactly the same, it's just they go about it differently. They celebrate individuality, but at some point you have to accept that individuals with different philosophies and brain chemistry, because aliens and stuff, are never going to be able to truly unite and work together as one. There's always going to be disagreement there over what that action should be, whereas the Borg removes all that, gets rid of the individuality, everybody works together in common cause, and it's awful because of what you have to sacrifice to get to that point, but they don't do anything with that. You're right, because there's an opportunity there to even analyse Picard's connection to the Federation that he's given his entire life to, and there is nothing more shocking. I mean, I'm happily into my midlife crisis, that's probably not the right adjective, but... (laughs) The end-of-life crisis where you have to look back on it all as well. The idea that it could all be meaningless is this horrible ghost that just floats around you. I can only imagine I've not been there yet. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Tempting faint. But this could have been something that he also analyzed. I gave my life to the Federation, and there's some problem there. This is what I wanted, though, from season one. I'm bringing that back. Now, I wanted him to have some realization that the Federation couldn't do everything. And it doesn't have to be because the Federation is evil. I don't need Section 51 or whoever the hell they are to turn up and be evil. 31. 31, yeah, close enough. Just heading off the comments at the pass. We know what we're talking about. Technically accurate. Or one of yeah. us does. You do. When I'm relying on you for my technical accuracy, I'm more of a Star Wars man than I am a Star Trek. Ooh. Is that bad? I don't know. Just crossing the streams, isn't it? Oh, okay. We do it all the time. We've structured whole DC films during a Marvel podcast, so <laughs> we're way beyond that now. We're team why not both? Absolutely. So I don't need the Federation to be evil. I just need something like... Even with the best will in the world, your paradise that's on Earth cannot spread throughout the entire Federation. At the edges, there's the Maquis. At the edges, things aren't so good. And maybe he just has to face that off. And his archaeologist comes out at him, which brings him to the frontiers, and he calls for help from the Federation. Can you help? But there's a problem going on in border space. Sorry, you're screwed. They're screwed. Nothing we can do. Don't have enough ships. But you're the Federation. You can do everything. Don't know what to tell you, mate. Resource guy says I can't have another ship for another three years. Can I put you in for that? Put you down for that? Can I put your appointment in? Brilliant. Schedule you in. So he has to go out on his own because he does believe in the values of the Federation, even though potentially some admiral says, Picard, don't you dare get involved. I know we can't come in, but you're the face of the Federation. If you come in there, it's like we're going in. And he says, okay. I got to do it. I'm sorry. I believe in the values of the Federation more than the Federation itself. Do you believe in Rome or Caesar? If you want to get your classically trained actor into some real good stuff or he's quoting Shakespeare, give him the old fashioned Caesar versus Rome choice. That was season one that I wanted to see. Potentially, you bring it back here in in season three with some of these same choices. Okay, you've got your son, but your son's the Borg. 
Everybody says, we're going to imprison your son, probably going to dissect him because here's section 31. You can have your evil federation. We've been cutting up changelings. We're not going to worry about an admiral's son. So, yeah, we just like to experiment on your son. Would you mind that? So he has to make that horrendous choice. And off he goes out into the stars. There's your season fleeing the Federation, having rescued his son from Section 31. And they can even have gotten the changelings in that point there as well, because how did you even know about all these laboratories where all the testing goes on? How do you find out who Vadik is? Well, to rescue my son, I actually had to go into the very laboratory where Vadik was being experimented on. Oh dear, there's a whole bunch of changelings in there being experimented on right now. Oh, this is a shame. What am I going to do? Am I going to save the evil changelings? Because that's what the Federation would have me do, be nice. But if I do, I know they're going to be terrorists and do evil things. Can we kill them? Do I free them? Hideous, awful moral choices. Did this show need a few more moral choices? Could they have gotten the Federation in? There's just so much. I could keep going, but you'd be bored. So I'll let you talk now. But just so much that was there as a potential that would have fitted the Star Trek that you talk about from before. Yeah, and it started with that in season one as well. You had, in the first episode, Picard doing that interview where he said he left Starfleet because as far as he was concerned, they were no longer Starfleet. They turned their back on their duty to the Romulans. And that's something that he just couldn't, forgive so he left in disgust and then he has that conversation with the admiral a couple episodes later who said you're aware that the shipyards on mars were blown up right we couldn't just build another fleet of rescue ships overnight and it's the idea of oh i understand where she's coming from but i also understand where picard's coming from and what's the resolution to that and sometimes there isn't an answer in fact that's what some of the best star trek episodes were about there is actually no quote-unquote right thing to do here but yeah. I'm going to have to arrive at some kind of choice and I'm going to have to live with the choice I make and I have to be sure that it's, for me, the right choice. In the episode I Borg, the choice between returning Hugh to the Borg or not is basically we can return him as a weapon and destroy the Borg, ridding the galaxy of a massive threat, but that would mean that we're committing genocide. Regardless yes. of what the Borg are, we'd be killing them. And that's not something that I'm prepared to live with. So we send Hugh back without the virus. And the consequences speak for themselves. The Borg continue to destroy people, assimilate entire species, all that stuff. But Picard made that choice based on the fact that he didn't want to be the one to pull that trigger. And he's right, because that is something that would be impossible to live with. Cisco decided to cross a line to bring the Romulans into the war in Deep Space Nine. That was a choice that he ended up having to live with. But for him, it was the right one, even though he had to do some horrible things to get there. And yeah, there's just a lack of that, because... Everything just kind of falls into place. That's crazy then that some of these 45-minute episodes, 42 minutes, technically accurate, were more powerful than this whole season. Yeah, it's because you don't have to labour the point sometimes. Sometimes just one conversation is enough. Yeah, You layer that conversation with enough stuff and it's enough. It's very weird that they don't... Either there wasn't the ability or there wasn't the intent to go deep in the way that they could have. Well, I do wonder if it's what you've already alluded to. The main difference between British shows and American shows where the British shows are written before they go out, whereas American shows are written sometimes as they're going out. We're right and film three episodes, but then we reserve the right to get the audience reaction to those before we write the rest. And I can imagine Nine was written after they'd gotten some data from the early episodes, even if it was through screeners to reviewers only. Maybe somehow they got feedback on episodes one through four, one through six. Some large enough percentage of the audience said, 
I don't like changelings as the main bad guy. Quick, change the main bad guy. Or the mysterious person that speaks to Vadik. When will we decide who that person is? We could probably just decide that in episode eight when that's going out. And we'll just do some feelers for who people think it is on Twitter. And then we'll pick the one that they don't go for. So we know we've pulled the wool over as many people's eyes as possible. I don't know that that happened, but... I'm unfortunately in a position where I could believe that one of those is true. The production background of this is that season two and three were filmed back to back. Really? So this was all done by the time that anybody was starting to see anything about it. Wow. But yeah, I could believe that there was a lot of course correcting as they went. And I kind of feel like season three is a course correction in itself. Although it could be that it's a course correction from season one entirely, if you think about it, because... People ended up criticising the lack of Starfleet and the lack of the other characters and stuff like that. So it's for season three, we'll do it. None we can do about season two because we've already scouted for locations and stuff and we're doing that. But season three, we can bring all these people in. What if there was no recovering from it then? Because now wondering if the reason people were calling for the rest of the crew, were calling for the rest of Starfleet, were calling for the familiar, is purely because season one didn't offer them any different. If it had really come out strong in the first three episodes of Picard season one, showing you something different, but hopefully really interesting, exciting, then we would never have had this undeniable call for the rest of his crew to come back for more Starfleet. Was it already too late by season one, episode four, to come away from Riker, Crusher, and so on? It's a good question, yeah. And I imagine you would never get an honest answer out of the showrunners because they're too busy blowing smoke up their own ass. (laughs) But how brilliant it's been because the fans are loving it so much and people are on Twitter saying, best episode of Star Trek ever, at Terry Metalis, and he likes their tweet or replies with a whimsical gif and... Everybody's really happy with it, but it seems like he's, as a showrunner, manufacturing an echo chamber for himself. He seems to ignore any criticism and jump on any positivity, which is a very human thing to do. As in, you're going to gravitate towards the person that's singing your praises, but if you're writing and producing television, you should probably be open to a bit of counter-analysis of what you're doing. Well, I would say that's true about anybody. Even doing my own job as mundane as what I'm doing in an office is, I should be open to constructive criticism as well as praise. So, yeah. Someone saying to you, here's a better way of doing that thing that you've been doing. I am left remembering something you said about the end of The Mandalorian Season 3 there. You said, was the last episode good or was it as good as it could be? I'm now thinking of that for Picard Season 3. Was it good in some way for these people that did enjoy it a lot? Or was it just a relief? Was it just as good as it can be in relative to what they hated for Season 2? Season 3 is better. You're in this corner and this is all you have to work with at this point. Yeah. Because if I'm standing on the bridge of season two, I am very much looking up at season three. Season three is Q showing off his awesome powers to me. But that's from the relative position that is season two. If I then went to see where I am absolutely in season three and look around, I will now observe that there are numerous powers above even that. But if you've only got that relative standpoint to go from, of, oh, I really hated season two. It is pretty glorious what we got. Oh, it's definitely better. And it's possibly the best overall, anyway, as a whole season. It's probably the best that Picard could be considering its setup. There is 
the possibility for a better show, but it would be a very different show. And then the thing is, as I've been watching this season, I was thinking about a couple of things. I was thinking about a way I could fix what they're doing, so what they're presenting me with on screen. But also I'm thinking about, like you mentioned earlier, with Picard dealing with the Borg early on and rescuing Jack from a Starfleet that wants to cut him open. That's a completely different show you're talking about. Yeah. You can fix things on a macro or a micro level, I guess. And the micro level is, here's the stuff that we have in this episode or this season, and here's how I could rearrange these pieces to give me something I would like more. The difficult consideration of what you actually want from something, I suppose, because I wouldn't want this season as it was presented at all. But if that's what I had to work with, I feel like there's ways that it could be improved, even with what was there, what was on screen. Well, that's why I tried to qualify early on for listeners here. I'm somebody who didn't get what I wanted from season one. So listening to me now, you already know I'm biased to some degree against this. There was no way I was necessarily guaranteed to love season three with that hanging over my head. Not impossible, but what do you want going in is always going to color you. And there's the other problem of the first thing you see the first adaption variation of anything you see is usually always the one you like the most. You don't normally see a variation that you like. It can happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. It happened with me. There's one Sherlock Holmes that I really love from the 80s where Sherlock is played by Jeremy Brett. And I just loved that so much. He was the perfect Holmes for me. And the idea of finding a different Holmes was almost impossible. It's the first one I've seen and I loved it. But then for reasons i can't possibly explain i saw robert downey jr play a steampunk version of holmes and i loved it i thought he was amazing so you can sometimes break that mold but that's really hard normally the first thing you see is perfect and anything trying to go up against it it's got to face off against your childhood joy. So that's a big mountain to climb is childhood joy, trying to overcome that. It's not going to be easy to do that. So potentially even Picard for me is going to struggle a little bit. I imagine with yourself, that's even harder for it to do. But I did notice they did one thing with this that tried to recapture some of the old feeling. And I wonder if this was done on purpose. They went more in the line of the films. The first two seasons of Picard are... TV show. Season three is a series of Star Trek Next Generation films strung together. The camera work looks the same. The direction looks the same. I wonder if they were trying to speak directly to people's emotions. You loved the films. Let's have that back. Maybe people didn't love the films. I don't know, actually. <laughs> I think the reception of the TNG films is largely a mixed bag. First Contact is widely accepted as being good. The other three, not so much. Definitely. Star Trek suffered from that thing you're talking about. Or maybe not suffered, but has dealt with that thing that you're talking about a number of times now, actually, because you had the casting of the original series being so indelible in people's minds, and then suddenly Chris Pine, etc., comes along, and people are like, oh, no. Turns out I'm okay with a new Captain Kirk. And then it's happened again in the TV show with a new Spock and a new Kirk as well. And people are still like, I'm okay with new actors in these roles, actually. So it can happen. But it's more that they have to give you their own take on it rather than just doing an impression of William Shatner or whoever. Oh, absolutely. It's not the case here because it's the same actors, but they're trying to recapture a feel and a vibe that the old show delivered so casually. Things like people gushing over the fact that the Enterprise D came back in the ninth episode on Twitter. People are like, oh my god, we got to see the Enterprise D going to warp. And then you think, yeah, but we used to see that every week. 
See, I'm not as advised to that as you sound like you are. No, I liked seeing the Enterprise D again, but it's the right. people gushing over the reappearance of these mundane things. And a big one was in one of the trailers, it looks like the TNG crew are going to be sitting around a conference table having a meeting. And I'm just thinking, why is that by itself a big deal? Did you tune into Next Generation and think, God, I hope they go to the conference room in this episode? Oh my God, you're so heartless. I didn't realise how heartless you were. That, to me, is fine. If they make a massive deal of it, and it's in every episode, and it's all they ever do, then no. But part of this, for better or worse, third season of Picard was a send-off for Next Generation. That's what it is. That was his mission statement, yes. Yeah, that's not necessarily what we wanted for the whole of Picard. It's not necessarily something that we thought we were even asking for when we started watching, but it's definitely where everybody ended up, even if that's the best we could do in the small room that we found ourselves in, as you described. Now, if we're going to do a send-off for Next Generation, then I want to see Enterprise D go into warp. I want to see them gathered around that table one last time. So I think... I do want to see that. I'm not the sort of person to gush on Twitter. But if I was, then I would be one of those people, I think, because it's the send-off. You're bringing people back. You're harking back to that old emotion. Why is it emotional that they're around that table? Because that's what I got to see them doing as a kid. It brings me back to where I was. It takes me back to where I was when I watched them sitting around that table, feeling that joy. So if they do once around the table, I argue it has great meaning. If the Enterprise D goes to warp once more, I argue that has great meaning. My difficulty with it was when they sat around the table, they weren't necessarily discussing anything amazing. When the Enterprise D went to warp, it went to Jupiter and it didn't mean anything. But if all of that had been given purpose, then it would have been so powerful. So I think I did like to see it to some degree, purely for that reminiscence value. And I think that's where a lot of people were coming from with that, just purely reminiscing. My problem was, that's fine, but it's just a reminiscence and it is not a substitute for plot. So I, I think... It cannot carry the TV series. But yeah, I do think those were big, strong moments that should be in there for that emotional impact. Yeah, fair. I think it's more the reactions to it that irked me because I was indifferent to the prospect of them sitting around a conference table. I wouldn't have felt that the season had lost anything if they didn't all sit around and have a meeting. But actually, when they did have that meeting, all I could think about is, this isn't your ship. There is no one who is actually assigned to the ship at this meeting. All of these difficulties are because you had no connection to it. If you'd have been in the moment, then you might not have seen that. I argue that it would have been more powerful, again, by bringing everything forwards. If they'd have rescued Jack and jumped onto the Enterprise D to escape the solar system, and then they had to sit around the conference table on the Enterprise D, that would have been the best way of doing it because we're at this table for the same reason we were always at this table. The Ox are stacked against us. We seem completely screwed. There's no way out of this. Options, says Picard, and everybody comes up with their options. That would have been an amazing moment. So I think if they'd have given it to you in terms of the plot, you would have been able to ignore what was going on Twitter because it sounds like that came with the baggage of, I don't understand why you're gushing because the series isn't worth it. If you could somehow divorce the emotion of the series with the emotion of the moment, it would be easier to access. But that's too difficult to ask a human being to do because you do want some plot now and again. Yeah, I've wanted 
things to be meaningful, and I don't think a lot of what they did was all that meaningful, which colours the fan service for me because I'm not feeling what I'm supposed to feel because I don't feel like it's... I use the word feel a lot in those few seconds there. It's not giving me anything to connect to. Yeah, absolutely. Other than the surface level. Here's these characters that you really like sitting in chairs around a table. Yeah. Isn't that great? No, it's not. Not really. Not by itself. Yeah, it's not enough. So what are you going to give me that's actually meaningful? And I'm still waiting for the answer to that question, actually, because it doesn't really do a lot. And the things I liked most about the season were the non-fan service elements. You talked about how Jack and Picard, they share a few scenes where they have a drink and things like that. Those were some of my favourite moments. Right. Again, as moments, because it's two actors who are very good sharing the screen together and discussing things. It's a father and son that have never met before trying to figure out who they are to each other, trying to find some baseline for their relationship. And that in itself, as a conversation, is an interesting conversation. Fair enough. I didn't get loads out of it, but I won't say that I found it impossible to understand that someone could. So, yeah, fair play. But that's down to Patrick Stewart and Ed Spielers, who worked really well together. Yes, they did. I'll give you that. They certainly did. They were both very capable with what they were given. In a lot of these cases, it's not the actor that got problem. I mean, Rafi, no problem. Again, with the actor, you wanted the script to give them more. The material isn't making the best use of their talents. Mm. One of the other things I liked a lot during the season was the handling of Riker, because I feel like they did move him into an unfamiliar place that we'd never seen for the character before. We knew he had a dead son in season one, but I really like that they jumped headfirst into it and made his difficulty processing that loss so much of what he was dealing with in the early episodes. They almost wound me up when it was, oh, Deanna and Kestra don't want me around at the moment. God, here we go. We're going to get some manufactured angst that could be solved with a single conversation. And to be fair, it was largely solved by a single conversation. Hmm. But I like the idea that Breaker had no fight in him left because his son had died. He had just all but given up, and that affects his command style. So he, he doesn't take as many risks. He doesn't throw himself into it in the way that he would have before. And the way that he deals with it, it's a bit contrived, but it's actually one of the more Star trek moments that the season has. He sees this incredible thing, the birth of these space-dwelling aliens that look almost exactly like the encounter of Farpoint space-dwelling yes. aliens because fan service... But the idea that he witnesses this miracle and it it gives him that spark back and he keeps it for the rest of the season. I thought his arc through the first four episodes was very good. I'm not going to deny it and I'm not going to challenge it. I didn't connect with it. And I think it's potentially just because it's one of those things that if I watched it twice, I'd get more out of it the second time round. See, I did watch it twice. Ah. Because with screeners, I would watch the episode once just to watch it. Yeah. And then watch it a second time to take notes and then do my review. I was too out of my emotional framework to connect with it. I was still analysing in my head. And I spent a lot of time thinking, I don't understand. Why have you given up now? You were fine before. And then someone says, oh, but yeah, Deanna had been protecting you. She'd put up a block. She'd essentially done some horrible mind alteration to you. And so you'd not been able to feel it before. And I think, okay, why did she drop it? And then I got lost. They probably did explain that. But I must have been thinking about it and missed the actual plot. So I'm not going to challenge anything you said because I don't honestly believe I can. It's only because I was thinking too much about it at the time that I probably wasn't allowing myself to emotionally connect with it. Even now I'm thinking, can you tell me, why did Deanna drop the barrier? That's not explained. I guess the implication is that Riker realised that's what she was doing and that's why he took off. Right. 
Okay. Troy once again proving she's really bad at the job that she's supposed to do. Yeah, this is a difficulty for me now you've said that. At least she's consistent. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I didn't follow it well enough to understand it and because of that I didn't connect with it I think I'll just have to defer to your opinion on it and say maybe I would see that second time around the mental block thing didn't come into it until later on actually it wasn't until they were captured on the Shrike that they discussed Mm. that up until that point it just seemed that he was struggling and yeah in season one he didn't seem to be that torn up and it did seem like he'd processed it but that's the thing about grief it's not an absolute and you go back and forth No, not at all. Plus, you can put on a game face with your best friend when they turn up. You don't suddenly have to burst into tears just because somebody you know turned up. Plus, it had been many years. Not that that removes the pain, but it's not so immediate when it's 15 years later. It had been quite a long time because I think the son was older than the daughter. I can't remember now I've said that. So it certainly allows you to make pizza for your mate and not break down again. And some people might say, well, not for me. And fine, I get that. But as you say, even then, it is definitely unique to the individual. So I can imagine for a military officer, 15 years distance allows him to hide it well enough such that he can make pizza. And that's fine with me for Reinker. Or he was just having a good day that day. Or maybe he was, yeah. I didn't follow it, I didn't quite understand it, but I I understand that all of this is definitely possible. Well, I think they had some execution issues in that as well, and that might have diverted you intellectually as well, because it certainly did with me. Picard and Riker arguing over the command strategy that they should follow in regards to the Shrike. Picard's sitting there saying, we need to turn around and fight, we need to fire all weapons, all that stuff. And Riker's like, no, we need to hide. And Riker's not wrong because they are outgunned, the Shrike is way more powerful, and they're heavily damaged. So the best course of action is to hide and wait until they're ready to escape. Based on the available information, that's what they should do. Turns out Vadik has a portal gun that complicates things massively, but they don't know that at the time. So Riker's strategy is the right one. Picard is wrong. And then you get to that point where Riker follows Picard's guidance and the torpedoes go through the portal and hit the Titan and they're crippled. But again, that's not Picard's fault because he didn't know they had a portal gun at the time. They did at that point, actually, but I guess they didn't expect that to happen. But anyway, Riker's reaction is, you've just killed us, leave the bridge. And it seems like there's a rift between them and their relationship that was built over decades has been fractured in some way. And then what happens the next episode? They just say sorry and they move on. So what was the point in having the argument in the first place? It's tricky because you can see how it's put together as a jigsaw. People that have known each other for that long should be able to make up quick because they do understand each other. But equally, people that have got that form of background and in a narrative sense have got a character development already done, you don't ever want to see them just taking the roles that the plot needs. We need two people to argue over a course of action. You two are the main characters, therefore you're going to do it. Now, one of you therefore has to say something that you might not normally have said because we need the argument to happen. Right, okay, that's a shame because it involves me changing my character. But then I'm coming back on, well, actually, it's got the building blocks if Riker had changed his mind because of this emotional baggage that he was carrying. But if I say that, then we come back to your point. Well, in that case, it should have taken longer for him to get over it because he's got the emotional baggage. So there are two different possibilities working against each other. Either he's got the baggage or he doesn't. Either he's a different character than we saw him or he's not. You've got to pick a direction. They pick the jigsaw pieces that are convenient from the plot. Riker has baggage. Therefore, he challenges Picard when he really wouldn't. And we should be able to say, I trust you, writer. Riker's doing something out of character. 
you're going to explain this to me later. That's interesting and I want to know. But then, of course, it comes to the next episode and they say, ah, but we're actually best friends and I don't have any baggage anymore. And all of a sudden you feel betrayed because, no, 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 you said something that was really interesting. Riker has been twisted by something. What was that? Oh, and then it comes back again later on. Oh, well, he was twisted. It was by this. But he wasn't twisted at that point because he got over it. What? Pick a story. Pick a lane. Stay in it and make the plot about it. But again, there's not enough time. There's too many characters. We need to move on. Although that's weird given that we spent how many episodes in the nebula. Makes you think we could have spent a lot more time. Yeah, it took them four episodes to get out. Well, three. Yeah. But we've got the other captain who had to perform his role. We've got seven of nine who had to perform her role and so on and so on and so on. So again, despite taking four episodes, we still had too many characters potentially. Yeah, and the thing is, it would have been easy to go after what they were trying to go after. All you have to do is have Riker make mistakes as a commander and Picard notice it. Yeah. What's going on with you? I've seen some things that I wouldn't expect to see from you. What's happened? Tell me. And then they can disagree over that and you perhaps a breaker getting a bit too defensive because Picard strikes a nerve. Yeah. And Picard's point of view is perhaps you're in command of this ship. You have to think about the well-being of this crew, and I don't think you're doing that right now. Instead, it's this Picard wants to go guns blazing and Riker doesn't. But Riker is clearly strategically right, and I couldn't get past that. In that yeah. argument, I was just thinking, if I was in command, I'd be doing what Riker's doing. Yeah. Because it's the clear best option. You cannot win in a one-on-one engagement with this ship. But no, we're going to make our point. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. I think that's another problem that they persistently had throughout this season. And then you had episode four, which some would call the best episode of Star Trek ever made. Nope, that's the defector. <laughs> Get that recorded. I don't know what I consider to be the best episode of Star Trek ever made. I do know that it's not no-win scenario, though. Okay. Even then, I just gave you my favourite by your argument earlier. Knowing the best and knowing your favourite are two different things. And I'm not going to contest you on The Defector being a great episode, because it is. It's an excellent episode. Is it the best that Star Trek has to offer? I don't know, but it would probably be on some of those lists. It should certainly stand up as one of the best plots, even if it's not the best episode, because it doesn't use all these characters and it doesn't use the amazing graphics and it doesn't use X, Y, and Z. Then, yeah, that might be a better way of doing comparisons. It's saying it's one of the best at this characteristic of Star Trek. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see, therefore, what people thought was the characteristic of Star Trek that episode four exemplified. Well, I wonder if it's just recency bias. Oh, maybe. Yeah, that's an easy one. Part of it could be that. But in terms of quality Star Trek episodes, I don't think it would even crack the top 100. Well, it didn't for me, although I am still going through this crisis of understanding and faith and what have you with my advancing age, he said. Hopefully not that old. But nonetheless, it's causing me to doubt and consider. And I do want it to be open as a possibility that some people did love episode four that much and i would really like to speak to one of them someone told me that they thought it was the best episode of modern star trek that i can accept oh, that's interesting everything since discovery started right of everything that since discovery started i think this is the best episode i don't agree but i can accept it more than this is better than the other 800 episodes of star yeah. trek would it would be interested to speak to somebody who thought that because maybe when you actually got them to dig down to it maybe that is the reality best of modern and then you would understand it so it's become important to me now even if it wasn't before to allow that door to be opened because somebody could then come through and qualify it the problem with social media is if you just ask that question people will think you're trying to attack them oh god yeah you could never ask on twitter you'd have to get them into some sort of let's call it gentlemanly environment that we've established here 
<laughs> yeah. If you just went to some random on Twitter and said, why is this the best episode of Star Trek ever? They would possibly consider that an attack. And then they would get defensive and you wouldn't get any useful information at all. Uh, It'd be interesting to find someone. The line from Men in Black, a person is smart, people are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals. Absolutely. You get one person on their own that thinks this is the best episode of Star Trek ever, and you go through it. Mm. You discuss it, and you present your side of it, why you think it isn't, they can tell you why they think it is, and then you see where you end up. Yeah. That's why podcasts exist, I guess, or that's part of why they exist. Exactly. But... I will say that episode four is probably the best of the season because of all of them is the one that I would consider to be the most standalone. And there's competency in the scripting. You've got things that are foreshadowed that then become relevant as the episode goes on. For example, Shaw refers to himself as a old school grease monkey. And then later in the episode, they need an old school grease monkey to do something. Yeah. Set up payoff. It's the simplest thing in the world. And yes. the stuff happening in the nebula is an extension of the theme of parenthood that Picard and Riker encapsulate. And let's face it, the ending where they escape the nebula is pretty exciting. It's a good set piece. Oh. And Picard takes the centre seat and gives orders. So you get to see Captain Picard again for possibly the first time in three seasons. Those ingredients make it the best episode of the season for me. But in terms of its comparison to other things in the franchise. You could argue that we're stuck in a nebula and need to get out, or stuck in an anomaly and need to get out is a bread and butter Star Trek episode. Let's write an anomaly episode. It's a good mid-season filler. You don't have to use too many sets. You can use all your existing sets. You just need one of those cloud screen savers for the outside. Job done. But you have the tight manoeuvring through asteroids and things, which reminds me of an episode called Booby Trap, where the Enterprise is stuck in an energy-sucking booby trap that they fall into and they escape by just doing careful maneuvers and picard takes the helm in that one and i'm just thinking i don't think this is even as good as booby trap (laughs) and booby trap i wouldn't put on my top 100 star trek episode list i think it's a good episode i think people overreacted to the fact that oh this is actually a competent episode of television and a competent episode of the show and most of what it does is contained within itself Fair enough, yeah. It's potentially that Mandalorian commentary that I still need to find again so you can quote from the last video. Put it in some show notes. Yeah, it's got to be something like a screen junkies or something where they say when you see basic competency in writing after you've been surrounded by all this other rubbish, then that basic competency feels like looking on the face of God. (laughs) Finally saw something that you thought, yeah, this is good, this is right, this is what it should be. Might not be absolutely the best thing ever, but it does remind you what you like. Yeah, but then you get to the halfway point in the season, they still haven't really done anything (laughs) as well. You have the entire episode that essentially reminds you of the Changeling plot. With rule. Which again should have been quite powerful and sort of wasn't. Did like seeing her, did like the idea of what she'd done. I like the fact that she was somebody from Picard's background and that there were consequences here. There was meaning here. I didn't like what you did. I'm not sure if I can trust you. You won't ever understand me. This, that, and the other, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And then build it into the plot. Maybe even taking that. Are you really you or are you a changeling? That could have gone on for a little bit longer. Could have had a hidden Cylon episode where they're really trying to figure out who's the not real person amongst them. And if you've got somebody that you really disagree with, then that's, I want you to be the Cylon because I don't agree with you. Then it turns out they're the red herring. And then you could even go triple. It turns out there was them again. You know, there's an utter nonsense sometimes when you go too far. But just not even taking that basic consideration in of what that could have been. Because it's... 
another one where it's really meaningful to Picard. This young woman that he made a connection to that seemed to have something really important to do in the Federation. It is nice that she then comes back and does something really important for the Federation. But it's kind of throwaway. It's not really necessarily very well dug into. You are asked to be upset that she had to do this. But I was still stuck more on, no, keep talking about your past and your history. That's much more interesting than these changelings. Let's resolve this. Stop beating around the bush and refusing to tell me what your philosophical change of mind must have been, Ro. Tell me. What was it? Why did you join security? What's going on here? Give me this backstory. I don't want to hear about changelings anymore. But no, I'm being asked to be upset that she's self-sacrificed. Intellectually, I agree. That's not actually necessarily a good thing. Kind of glad that she's on our side, but somehow stole the emotion away from me. Yeah, and Picard and Rose's history is interesting in itself because he took a special interest in her when she was on the Enterprise. He helped her progress in her career and stuff like that. And then she defected to the Maquis, which he felt was a personal betrayal to some extent. Big deal. It's not something that they dwell on in TNG, actually. And in fact, the episode where she defects is the penultimate episode of the entire show. Preemptive Strike, that's what it's called. Picard sends her on a mission to infiltrate the Maquis to gain intelligence. She starts feeling sympathetic towards her cause and then decides to join it. It's an old story, isn't it? Yeah. It's simple and, and it's interesting. And you can understand why Picard would feel personally betrayed by this because it's someone that he put a lot of time and personal energy into that it then turns into that. But also, I feel like when they were arguing, Picard came across as really self-righteous because you would think in the intervening years he would maybe understand her point. Maybe after the situation in the demilitarized zone became more publicly known, he thought about it and thought, okay, can kind of see where she's coming from here. Because you got that from Cisco all the time. He sympathized with the Maquis, but he also recognized that his orders are to bring them down, so that's what he's going to do. Yeah, It's a shame, but I have to do it. And that was an interesting wasn't even a conflict he didn't question the fact that you had to do it and then you had the guy that betrayed him and he went after him on a very intense vengeance driven mission but that's another story but again that's the complexity of star trek isn't it you've got this terrorist group but you look at what they're fighting for and then you actually think no that makes sense you're taking their homes away from them because you signed a piece of paper and they don't like that and they're going to fight to stay there. Who in the world can't understand that? Absolutely. And it brings us back to that border issue again. It's a paradise in the middle of the Federation, but on the borders it's not. And that is always going to cause trouble. Starfleet has to deal with that. Yeah, totally. Good stuff. Yeah. In the Maquis episode, Cisco says exactly that. If you're on Earth, you look around, it's paradise. Out here, it isn't. And the people that live in paradise will never understand that because they're yeah. not here looking at this. But... Cisco and his crew are in a unique position because they're there. They see it all. Absolutely. And you can see how Picard is in that ivory tower on the flagship. He may not understand what true suffering actually is because he's so distanced from it, flying around the lap of luxury. But you think in the intervening years he would at least have some empathy for it, especially when he's had some experience with defying Starfleet order since then, things that he doesn't agree with. In fact, it's actually referenced in that episode where Shaw lists the questionable things that Picard and his crew did, and one of them is the events of insurrection. It makes the reference of something like ignoring the prime directive so he could snog a villager on Baku, which is oversimplifying it, but that's the point. The point is he's making fun of him for it. Yeah. But also in that conversation, Picard reminded of a time that he thought that what was going on and what was sanctioned by the Federation was wrong, and he took steps to go against it. 
And then suddenly he's faced with Roe, who did that exact same thing. So you'd think it'd be on his mind. I get where you're coming from now. Yeah. Because I've done it. If they want to go down this route and change their perspectives, they want to have some real fun with it, then maybe Rose changed her mind and flipped back completely the other way. No, you were right. I spent time with the Marquis. It was horrible. We killed so many innocent people. I just couldn't bear it. There's many angles they could have gone down, but yeah, not enough time. A few minutes with her. Do your thing. Get out. I think the starting point was we're going to bring these two characters back together. They're going to be really annoyed at each other. And that's what's going to prompt them being sure that they are who they say they are because they're really upset with each other. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't be unless you were authentic. Yeah, so it's an example of the plot force getting what it needs to be out of the two characters. You'll do what this needs because the plot needs it, darling. Can't stand it. Yeah, so then you have Ro repeating the same stuff about why she did what she did and Picard being self-righteous about it. Until seconds before her death, he says, I forgive you. Because she's going to really care about that in that moment, isn't she? Well, yeah. Plus, it doesn't allow her the opportunity to speak up around her particular side of things. As if his forgiveness was all important and nothing else mattered beyond that. No, we haven't in any way talked out the fact that it's not just down to you to forgive me. There's this much more complicated emotional situation than... I betrayed you. Just because the show is called Picard doesn't mean it gets to be all about him in every setup like that. It could have even been a bit offensive. Yeah, I got the sense that Ro was there specifically. She put herself in that position because she knew that Picard was the only one that wouldn't be flappable. So she was going to trust him to carry on the investigation. And I guess the reports about what the Titan was doing was cluing her up on the fact that they were circling what she was dealing with. Well, it shows that she's got respect for him and that's good, but if it's not going to be given to you in the plot and you have to pick all these things up yourself as, well, I can work out that it could have been this. No, I want to see it in the plot. Yeah, it's often good enough for them to strongly infer stuff and you can see the underlying side of it, but when it's just not there, that's a problem. But Bo is a character that everybody was wondering what happened to her and now we have our answer and she's killed. Yeah. And it's in service of a really boring and turns out largely inconsequential changeling plot. Yeah. What can we say about the changelings other than did we get anything out of them at all? No, not really. (laughs) They actually were something that was not just altered by weird random scientific garble. They were also significantly altered by the plot force. We talked about that before. So one of the worst things about them is they are probably... At the level of Dalek level threat as an individual, but as soon as you multiply them out, they lose all their power. Because as soon as you've got to have three or four of them running towards a character, they immediately get the plot force label of MOOC, which means they can be taken out with one hit, one effect, one anything is enough to drop them. Whereas they should be a serious power. But the plot always requires that multiple low-level bad guys are easily dealt with. It's just the way the plot is written. The plot force needs that. Only an important named character can go toe-to-toe with the hero. Everybody else has to drop. And it's just so annoying to see the plot force so brutally used with somebody who would come along actually in the writer's room and say, no, no, these are the rules of storytelling. The minions have to go down quickly. It's how you show that the character's strong. It's the way it must be done. You're thinking, no, there are rules of storytelling. I get that. You do want to have minions that are taken down, but didn't you have something really emotional that you could do? Like having some humans that have been ordered by a changeling captain to take down the traitors 
And then all of a sudden, our heroes have to decide, what are we going to do about all these normal, I can't just say humans, but these people that are part of the Federation, these poor ensigns that have been told to charge us because we're evil. We've got to set everything to stun, obviously, but I'm going to feel really guilty when my weapon gets knocked out of my hand and all I've got is this iron bar. And that's going to really upset me to brain some poor ensign. So you can turn it into this emotional point. You can still have your minions, but nope, we stick to the rules of the plot. So the changelings will become this because we need them to. So not only are they not useful because they're not the Borg in the main plot, but they're also completely subject to hideous applications of the plot force. So I'm starting to feel sorry for them now, actually. And you can do that thing you talked about with the... Starfleet officers with the Borg as well in the way that they assimilate people in the show. As far as we know, there might still be a chance to save them, but they're also currently trying to kill us. Yeah, what are you going to do? And you have this big setup as well. Geordie's got two daughters who have both been taken, and they do have one moment with it. By the way, Geordie, I'm your best mate. I'm telling you that the only way to save them is to leave them here. Yes, Data, you're right. Okay, let's do it. And from now on, we resolve never to mention them ever again. You don't have time to do anything with it. But you've got this other problem. You've got this ship with Seven of Nine and Rafi and everybody just being completely pointless in the end. Quite like to have seen something where the Titan and the Enterprise D both go to Jupiter. And Geordie turns to Captain Picard and says, or Admiral Picard, and says, Admiral, I've got you here. You can now go into that Borg cube. I've done all I can. I'm going for my daughters. Bye. But I trust you to solve the Borg problem. I've done my bit. I've done the engineer's bit. Keep it all this high emotion. Keep that tenseness in there. Keep the plot that you've already set up. But no, we don't need Geordie to be any... Oh, by the way, Geordie's a father. It's almost like just, oh yeah, this character's a mother now. And then that defines them. It starts to become a bit offensive when people are just reduced down to, yep, Geordie's a parent. Doesn't mean anything. Just have a few chats with these other women at some point. Refers to their mother occasionally. Doesn't mean anything. We'll come back to that, but on the changeling thing, they've been reduced down to henchmen, which means they can't do an awful lot. And there's a few issues with that. Someone pointed out to me that the difference in changeling abilities would be down to the experiments that are done to them. So they're now the perfect mimics of humans or humanoids. But they've lost a lot of their other stuff, so they can't turn into a deer or something like that. In Deep Space Nine, you see a changeling imitating a space-borne organism, and it can fly about in space or turning into fog or stuff like that. They used to be able to do practically anything. Oh, yeah. But there was weaknesses in the way that they assume humanoid form that you can detect. Well, it turns out that none of the detection methods actually ever worked. In Deep Space Nine, you had the big deal about blood screenings. They would always do blood screenings. But... The very first changeling infiltrator you meet is Martok. And what's the first thing he does? Let's cut our hands and prove that we are who we say we are. And then later on you meet the real Martok and you think, oh, so blood screening, they don't work. And they've never worked. Great. We have no way of finding them. And they had two whole episodes where Starfleet were trying to find a way to weed out changelings. And it turns out, yeah, we've got a few ideas, but nothing really worked. And then they drop it eventually. The idea of a changeling being among us sort of falls by the wayside in Deep Space Nine eventually because they start focusing on other things. But it's a terrifying prospect, and that's all that they wear in this show. But when you have changelings trying to kill people or whatever, it's more interesting if they can just turn their hand into a stabbing weapon or whatever, rather than slowly walk down a corridor and get shot or stabbed and that's them dead. You have four of them gang up on Jack in the corridor. Contrast that with an episode of Deep Space Nine where you're told that there are four changelings on Earth 
And that is much scarier than four of them ganging up on someone in the corridor and getting killed. When I was watching the season, I went back to Homefront and Paradise Lost because I felt the hankering to see a good changing story. I kept having to give myself sort of antidotes to the nonsense this show was giving me by watching better examples of it in previous Trek. That episode's great because it's all about paranoia. It's all about the threat that the changelings represent without even having to do anything. The very idea of them is what's terrifying. They can be anywhere. They can be anyone. They could strike at any time. And that causes one admiral to be so terrified of that that he tries to stage a military coup to take over the Federation and turn it into a police state. That's what they do. They sprinkle an operative in the right place at the right time and destabilise everything around it. But they don't do that here. You hear about them in the upper echelons of Starfleet and whatever, but you don't really see it. And they're mimicking so many people, so you've got ships full of changelings. That's not interesting to me. No. The reason I did the parallel to Daleks is because of that same issue. It's the trillion Dalek problem. I'm supposed to just be surprised by the number. I'm supposed to be just responding to the number. But then you show me that they're all useless. So why would I be upset by that large number? I'm not going to be. Somehow misunderstanding of what threat actually is, as you say, the threat of the changelings is on a totally different level. It's based on what they represent, what they can do, how they interact with our fears. But now they're just a brute force. And I understand that Vadik is a bit nuts because she was experimented on. So I understand that she's being used as a horror character in that sense. So I won't worry about her being changed, but most of them don't have a threat value. I mean, the ones that are all wearing the strange suits and the masks and the helmets on the ship, why? Is that because you didn't realise there were changelings until episode six when you wrote that in? And then you just had to keep everybody hidden until that point. We knew we had changelings early in the season, but we didn't decide Vadik was a changeling until later. I could believe it. Yeah, absolutely. And the people on her ship, well, they could be any aliens, and we might get them to pull their helmets off at some point. Oh, but no, they're shapeshifters, so it's totally fine. So the threat value is dispersed across too many people to make it possible, altered by the flock force, and not in any way consistent because the characters don't seem to be defined even from the start. I would love to know at what point during the process these decisions were made, because I can believe it. I can believe a lot of decisions were made at the last minute. Well, it makes sense that they're wasting so much time with the changelings when you realise that they're a means to an end. They were never supposed to be anything that you were going to invest too much time in or too much thought in. If you're going to give me eight episodes of that, though, you're sort of forcing me to invest a bit of time in it. Go back to She-Hulk, for example. Let's talk about that again. You've given me eight episodes of someone wants her blood, and then in the ninth episode you tell me, ha, filled you. We spent eight episodes giving you that, and it turns out it's pointless in the ninth episode. And all I think is, well, then why did you take it so seriously for eight episodes? It's a really long and not funny joke. Yeah. So why do we spend eight episodes with the Changeling if they're only the Borg's foot soldiers? It's one of those ones that, again, it's set up to be excellent because these creatures should, I shouldn't call them creatures really, should I? These people do have a bone to pick with the Federation. They did do horrible things. Now, admittedly, it was war. Admittedly, we did horrible things first. But when somebody shoots you, you don't say, oh, I'm totally okay with that because somebody I know shot you first, you are still upset. So it's set up as being from a really good place. I can completely understand why changelings would be extremists, 
and want to carry out these actions. However, they will be shackled from carrying out these actions because the mystery plot will always hold them back and never let them do anything good. And it'll make them reveal their massive weapon on some base. So was it's the university, effectively. It's a recruiting centre. Recruitment centre. We'll reveal our massive weapon early on to cause them fear, to get everybody on edge before we do our main attack later. That'll help. And then they never mention it again. Yeah, but then it doesn't even come up. So first of all, it's a stupid plan. And then second of all, it doesn't have any relevance anyway. So they're set up really well in terms of motivation, but the plot force treats them like puppets all the way through. They're never allowed to do anything of any consequence because the plot needs them to be useless, mysterious, and give me another adjective. And then disposable. And disposable. There we go. There's your three. I'm not going to take credit for this line of thought, although I do agree with it. It was something I saw from a fellow commentator on Twitter. They were talking about how the changelings could have been more interesting, and it has everything to do with the acceptance of responsibility, as in they're needs to be some recognition that the Federation provoked the Dominion War quite significantly. It's stuff like, they go into the Gamma Quadrant, the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta approach them and say, stay on your side of the wormhole. The Federation don't. They keep going through, they establish colonies on the Dominion side of the wormhole, they're encroaching on their space, they're constantly provoking a response, and then eventually there is one. Eventually the Dominion think, well, we're going to do that but worse we're gonna put a real foothold in the alpha quadrant we're coming through and we're coming for everything and i'm not saying that the dominion were right to do that but it also wasn't unprovoked it wasn't a pure conquest based decision it was a reaction to what the federation were casually doing but they were doing it under the banner of exploration and peaceful expansion but you can see how it'd be interpreted as a hostile act and then you do it in a very personal way in picard as well with Vadic and the other changelings that were experimented on. And it's one of those things where they throw so much dialogue at you at once, you can't quite latch on to what they're actually talking about. But I think it started off that there's nine changelings that were experimented on, and they were given this ability to be the perfect mimics. And then they were able to pass on that ability to other changelings at the cost of them losing most of their transforming abilities and having a significantly reduced lifespan. Something like they only had 50 years left or something. Yeah. They mentioned something like that. But you have a very personal setup from Vadic, certainly, where she's been tortured in a lab by Starfleet, by an organisation that should be better than that. And it comes into that fear-based thing again. What did the Federation do when they felt threatened? They sanctioned these horrible experiments on their enemy to find out what makes them tick. And those experiments were brutal. Then being living beings, they decided to retaliate. And suddenly you have your plot where the changelings are really pissed off because of what was done to them. And then you have someone like Picard who upholds the finest traditions of Starfleet and the Federation, all those values. He finds out about it and he's horrified. And what does he do with that information once he finds it? We discussed this before. We weren't recording when we did it. Instead of let's set a trap for her, it should have been let's reach out and apologize and attempt a diplomatic solution. That diplomacy doesn't have to work, but the fact that they attempt it would be appreciated. And then suddenly you have a reason to sit these people around a conference table in a way that you can be excited about. Well, that's the thing that we said earlier. It does make that much more impressive and meaningful if when they do sit down, they have a good old-fashioned moral debate as they used to, where one character was so affected by something 
that they argued from a passionate point of view, and then the rest of them had to say, well, Starfleet, and you got the rational perspective. That was a perfect way of doing that, actually. Yeah, then you could add an episode where they try and talk it out, and maybe it fails because Vadic's in too deep now, or she's cornered and has nothing to lose, or her boss will punish her if she deviates from the plan or yeah. any of those things. There could be any number of reasons that she decides, Absolutely. nope, I can't accept your offer of help here. I even agree with you, and I'd really love to, but my commitments to the other side mean I just can't. So we actually now like each other, and we've still got to fight, even worse. And then you have the next generation characters, the moral centre of the universe, as they would sometimes be portrayed, having to deal with the fact that they have sworn an oath to an organisation that doesn't uphold that oath. It's another reason why... All of this should have come out in episode three. The mystery was fine for your opening three episode arc, because in three episodes, not knowing everything is fine. I think you'd be okay with that. Just having a few bits of information to keep you going, but it's a breadcrumb trail and you didn't really know anything. And then you get it in episode three. And at that point, Maybe they know about the Borg, or maybe they get the Enterprise D, and they slowly have to tick off all of these problems over seven episodes. And it takes them just that long to get through everything. We've got the Changelings, we've got the Borg, we've got Jack, we've got this, that, and the other. And it becomes something about how are we going to solve these problems? And if they're doing it right, more problems obviously generate along the way. As Worf turns up and says... See what you just did there? Actually, that makes something else much worse. Oh my God, I can't believe we did that. We made something else worse while we fixed that problem. Brilliant, there's episode six. We've got to solve a different problem we didn't even know was there. But as you said, it's reliance on the mystery. The mystery is everything. Where we never heard that before, what we had was problem, 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 solution, 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 usually with a cost to people. And during that point, we'll get our fan service, sit around the table and everybody like it. That is what I would have loved to have seen. Not the mystery at all. The drama of how are we going to solve this problem? Picard sitting with Vadek and they have a open moral discussion about the complexities of what's going on here. That's what I want from Star Trek. Yeah, how many times did they put somebody in prison cell in Star Trek Next Generation and have a chat through the force field? That was really common. People just standing on either side of there having a chat. That would have been a bit of fan service for you right now. Yeah, but instead they just gloss over all that and they set a trap for Vadek and you have Picard and Beverly discussing about how they've mutually agreed to kill her. And even earlier in the episode, they have a discussion about the possibility of committing genocide and then Picard's like, we'll table that discussion for now until we actually can do it and then we'll worry about it then. And Beverly's sitting there saying, yeah, let's do it. Why not? And she explains it by, yeah, I've lost my moral compass over the years. And I'm just thinking, okay, that's a weird statement, but what have you done with it? Even that's something that we should be able to do something with, because that brings you back to your Riker angle. It's been several decades. Maybe a doctor who's been on the frontier of the Federation, who's seen extremists, terrorists, and other desperate people slaughter so many innocents that she has actively given up the Hippocratic Oath. It took a lot to do it, and it only happened potentially because she didn't have the foundation, the rock that is the Enterprise around her. She never lost it during those seven seasons because the Enterprise and all of the people on it living those values centered her and kept her being that moral person. But when she was out by herself, when she got a child to protect, when there were people just having horrible things done to them, without that 
cushion that armor, she collapsed and gave into it. And that could be her coming back onto the bridge, going back into the med bay of Enterprise and thinking, yeah, this was what kept me together. All these years, I always had those thoughts, but this is what did it. I'm so glad I've come back here because I can now come back. And they could have investigated her, have done some pretty nasty things. And she's like, oh, I really need to make up for this now. So it could have been a really important reveal that without the Enterprise, Beverly fell apart. But no, as you say, it's just a line. It's just a plot point. It's just a nothing. Yeah, and what you do is you frame those discussions around that, around the fact that she's lost her moral compass, but everybody around her hasn't. So she's talking about, let's kill all the changelings. We can find something that will kill them all. And Picard turns around and says, are you listening to yourself? Yeah. Even Worf turns to her and says, even the Klingons don't do that. We're not into (laughs) just genocide for the fun of it, no. Yeah. And you have a similar debate when they're talking about killing Vadek and Picard's thinking, yeah, she's too dangerous, let's murder her. And of course she escapes, so they don't have to live with that choice because they don't make it. Oh, no. That's the common thing about modern writing. Nobody is ever forced to compromise. There's always a reason why they are actually amazing. In the end, they did that horribly to Black Widow. There's no way Black Widow did anything bad. She's just misunderstood. You didn't understand. You don't understand how many nights she spent on her knees crying because it might have gone wrong, but actually it was always fine. So there's no way they were going to compromise any of the characters. The modern version of Angel, as we discussed before, I never actually hit anybody. just thought he did. (laughs) Turns out they all survived. Exactly, all these years. And they all come together in the last episode and say how they're really glad that he drained them just a little bit and they all thank him for it because it made their lives better. As you say, that's a general issue with genre media, isn't it? It is at the moment. There's a version to making things difficult for these characters, making them cross a line and then having to live with crossing that line because sometimes you have them cross the line and then it turns out fine in the end. You thought you killed all these people, but it turns out it's fine. Turns out they were just paper mache. Yeah, whatever the justification is. The fact that you had the complete motivation to slaughter everybody means nothing. They turned out to be paper mache. Therefore, everything is definitely fine. Nothing bad in your head at all. (laughs) Usually, I think it's not that thoughtless. But I think we've even had somewhere it is just that thoughtless. Yeah, and that comes into play where Data is concerned as well, because you have that battle between him and Lore, and everyone outside of data's head as saying let's lower this partition and hope data wins and no one turned around and says we're talking about killing a sentient being here yeah. are we okay with that you can understand how picard and co would default to the we should let data win side of it because that's their friends it's easy to be irrational when there's emotion involved but then you have geordie's daughter in the room who can turn around and say do you guys know what you're saying do you know what the implications of that are and then maybe someone sits and thinks oh yeah Lore possibly has as much right to life as data does. Are we okay with this now? To be fair, though, that is something that does have one of the best moral choices in it. That's probably one of my highlights, data's choice. He defeats Lore by giving in completely. He takes on that pacifist angle and says, yep, I'm gone. I'm out. You are going to win. I am going to vanish. However, you are going to take on my values and you're going to have to live this life now and it's this moment of utter self-sacrifice because data does die he's gone or he's used to it he's died before so it's obviously fine he knows what he's doing twice yeah but the point is it is actually a very moral decision pacifist he chooses to go but in doing so improves his brother on the way out 
gives him the capability to think through these things from a completely selfless angle. It's arguably one of the best decisions, best character moments of the whole thing because of that, but it's marred by everybody else going, yay, kill him, yay, kill him at the top, or also just giving you annoying exposition. I think Data might be giving in. I know, it's his plan. You don't need to tell me. It looks like he's surrendering. Yes, you just showed us the fact that he's surrendering. Do you really think we're that stupid as viewers? So, a really, really nice moment in the whole season. Really enjoyed that for what it represented. The execution left a little bit to be desired, but still one of my highlights. Yeah, I did like that internal conflict, and it's good to see Brent Spiner playing two different characters in the same scene. It's something he does very well. Mm. One of the highlights of TNG for me was whenever Brent Spiner would take on a different persona or just mess around. Mm. There were always fun moments, but the thing about the payoff i suppose for that plot was a problem for me because it gives you something other than what it was actually promising so data gives up gives all his stuff to lore and then lore prevails but he has all the baggage of all this morality that data gave him so what comes out of that is lore but with everything data learned so what you have is this unpredictable element among the crew that they don't understand. It looks like their friend. It sounds like their friend. They still call him Data. Yeah, but something about him is off, and they have to get used to that. And even then, Lore, as he is, doesn't know who he is anymore. Because suddenly he has a conscience, and he's never had one before. And that's troubling for him as well. It's actually like the Superior Spider-Man comic book arc, if you don't know what that is. In that comic book arc, Dr. Octopus puts himself in Peter Parker's brain and overwrites him and supposedly kills him. It gets undone because it's comics. Obviously. Peter Parker comes back. But for a while, Spider-Man was Dr. Octopus. But what he did have was he had Peter Parker's morality pushing up against his villainous side. And ultimately, he was being a hero, but in his own way, which was a bit more brutal, a bit less compassionate, all that stuff. But he was a hero, kind of. And I was looking forward to possibly seeing a bit of this with Data and Lore. But it didn't happen. It was just data, but he smiles now and uses contractions. And that's about it. Oh, and Deanna can sense him now. And so I was thinking, what's the scientific implications of that, that Betazoids can actually pick up emanations from a synthetic organism? Yeah, because it's previously established that she can pick up emotions from holograms, even if they're sentient, because she meets the Doctor and Voyager and she can't sense anything of him. Yeah. Yeah, so there's all that. But instead it was just, oh, don't worry. Besides a few changes, I'm basically data. And the one that died, the ones that died, they're resting peacefully. Don't worry about that. Yeah, they're fine. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about this ethical minefield that's been created by the fact that someone died or wanted to die and we've just forcibly resurrected them. But it's fine because this new version says it's fine. Don't worry about it. We're going into episode nine now. We don't have time to think about it. We're just going to be Geordie and Data solving a problem again. That's all we are. Yeah, consequences be damned. Yeah, and we don't even see them solving the problem. We see them giving a presentation. (laughs) But you don't see them working on it. You don't see the bantering. You don't see any of that. Because, again, you don't get Data back until Episode 9. Yeah, it's too late. Everything's too late. So you've got those elements in place in Episode 9 that you wanted to see, probably from Episode 2 or 3. But now there's no time to do anything with them because everything's happening. And... Even when there is still time to do things, we actually spend it on things like seeing the Enterprise D behaving like a ping pong ball inside a ball cube. Really needed to see that. That was really exciting to watch that go through all the pipes and the outfittings and what have you. Why do you want the Enterprise D back? It's the most maneuverable ship in the galaxy. (laughs) Take the Defiant. 
that's what you want for that kind of mission. <laughs> the Enterprise D, it wasn't built for maneuverability. Yeah. It was a big stately city in space, almost. Yeah, it's your diplomatic ship. It's your flagship. It's your biggest capital ship. Yeah, and people countered those arguments by listing times that you saw it maneuver in certain ways in the next generation. And one of them they referenced was booby trap, but they were steering around the asteroids to get out of the trap. Going at a millionth of impulse or something, because it couldn't go any faster. Yeah, my thought is, one, they're using thrusters, and two, there's a lot of clearance Mm. to get around. So, yes, it's impressive piloting, but also it's still possible because it's moving very slowly. Another one was in Relics, the one where Scotty was in it, and it does this half roll when it's going to escape the door of the Dyson Sphere. But again, the Dyson Sphere door is very big, Yes. And there's nothing around them to navigate. Yeah. So they're just flying straight towards a door that's closing. It rolls a bit and flies through. And that's it. So there have been no examples of what you're talking about here. But yes, it zips around and they justify it by Data is the one flying it so he can react faster than anyone else can. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But the ship can still only do as much as it can do. Yes. It doesn't matter how quickly you press the buttons. No. If you can hit the brake pedal slightly faster than someone else in a car, it doesn't mean you'll avoid a crash. No. That's possibly a very bad analogy. We're good. We know what you mean. So why are you bringing back the Enterprise D if that's what you want to do with it, is the question. Absolutely. Why would you bring data back if you're doing it so late in the season to actually do anything with them? Unless there were problems with the actors that they couldn't get them. I can't think of any good reason to do it the way they did. If someone said, look, I'm only available for this much screen time, but in that case, don't write them into the finale, have them as a cameo. You need to turn up and get some help from them, and then you leave them behind again. That was the case with Marina Sirtis, because she lives in England now. She wasn't available for as much filming as some of the others were, so that's why she's on a screen a couple of times early in the season and then doesn't appear properly until the eighth episode. She shows up, and the only thing she does of any importance is help Jack open the door that we've been desperate for him to open for eight episodes now. Random door just to get some psycho stuff in there. Yeah, Yeah. and she manages to zero in on them using her empathy as well in the final episode. It's the plot force. It's what it needs to be. She can do what she needs to do to further the plot. No thought or anything in there. It's just, who have we got? You'll do. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. And the whole thing about Data being this perfect android that's made up of the personalities of all the Zoom androids plus Zoom himself, there wasn't really much of a point in that because they retcon it in this next episode by saying the only personalities we need to worry about are Data and Laura's. The other ones are just memory files. So they don't really do anything with the other stuff. Even that's a bit plot for us because it's us asking the question, in a synthetic organism, what does it mean to be alive? Turns out there is a difference between a memory file and those memories being used by something. Okay, what's it being used by? Well, the central processor. Okay, so what is a positronic brain then? How is it using memory different from one to the other? Because pretty much everything that is data is in memory files. Now, I certainly don't need to go into a big episode all about data because that's Picard, it's not what it's about. But it just conveniently forgets everything of any import. Just to, again, the plot force. What do we need? We need a conflict between law and data. We don't want the others in the way of it, okay? They're just memory files. It's just a statement. It doesn't mean anything. Well, you could argue that data is as important to the DNA of the show as Picard is. Is it sorry with him as well? 
Well, potentially so, but in episode nine, I still don't need it. Yeah, the issue with that is they're suggesting that, okay, you back up data before he dies, and then you restore that back up in a new body, and that thing is data. But what you're doing is you're actually removing agency from the original data, because it's fine, the copy's alive now. So as far as we're concerned, it's the same guy. But the original data is still dead. And we've discussed that before that they do in Star Trek sometimes where it's we're going to replace this person with an exact duplicate and then carry on as normal, which they did with O'Brien in an episode of Deep Space Nine. Oh, I've always hated that. He's replaced by himself from slightly in the future. Therefore, it's fine. There's an episode of Voyager where Harry Kim is blown out into space when the hull breaches and replaced with an exact duplicate. If you're going to talk about the soul, so to speak... The consciousness, that original consciousness is dead, can't be brought back. So this new one, as similar as it may be, because it was created hours before his death, is something new, is someone new, it's completely different. Not completely different, but it's not the same person. You could say that about Picard as well. Is he a copy of the original? Well, yeah, this whole idea of, I mean, even reference it quite glibly. I'm just a construction of me. Doesn't that give you any sort of existential crisis? No, I'm fine. Yeah, I was uh, resurrected in a new body without my consent, and I'm okay with it. Yep, and I'm happy that I'm definitely me. No problem there at all. Yeah. Aren't you just a backup of the original that comes online after the original dies? Don't know. Guess not. They've found some way to transfer his soul into a new body. (laughs) His spirit. Whether you believe in such things or not, and I don't think Star Trek really messes with that too often, but it's a thing to think about. It's all very well to say we're a science show, we're not doing religion, we're just not going to bother with it. Well, no, you've still got to answer the questions that humans find important. If advanced sciences you've got, we still don't understand what death actually is, or if there's a meaning to life behind it. And science can just say, there isn't anything, you're dead, get over it. The human being is still going to go, well, yeah, but... Still a bit scary. That was part of Riker's early conflict in the season as well, where he talked about, I've been from one end of the galaxy to the other and I didn't see a single thing that suggests that there's anything beyond life. When you die, that's it, as far as I know, and my son's dead and not out there anymore. All those crazy things they've seen, they've just never seen an afterlife. And you still have to process that and what it means. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you have the opportunity there with two of your characters, but you don't take it. Date and Picard, both reborn in android bodies. Yes. You could have them sit and have a chat about it. If it happened in the next generation, they would sit and have a chat about it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Just another example of that same thing. Could have been and not used. Yeah, crazy. Let's get on to some newer characters then. With a couple of them, we had Captain Liam Shaw, the captain of the Titan who gets ousted. I had issues with him to begin with because it was pretty clear what they were doing. They wrote him specifically as an ass so that you would side with Picard and Riker even though they were taking over his ship without his knowledge. Then they gave him Cisco's backstory later in the season. And you also had him butting heads with Seven because he refused to accept her for who she is. And that's really all there is to him. He's just this antagonistic figure for antagonism's sake, for the most part. It's actually the same as the other things that we've brought up, though, I think. He's got a good idea set up, but it's never really used in anything other than a confusing way. Because once you realise he's got hatred of the Borg, then you could think, well, yeah, he's never going to like Seven. He's certainly not going to like Picard. And that's why he's definitely being a dick to both of them. But the consistency of that doesn't necessarily come in because you'd want the challenge to come earlier. You'd want there to be something like a slur that he uses or just an insult with seven. There's no way you can do X because you're part Borg. There's no way Y can be true with Picard because he 
was a collaborator. It just needs to come up rather than just being, again, a mystery. Why is he behaving this way? It's a mystery. Or if it's not that, it's because the plot force needs him to be that way. We'll explain it later when it's convenient for us, but not when a human being would naturally bring it up. There's no way you're getting control of my ship. I don't trust you. Why don't you trust me, Borg? Obviously, you'd have to do it more cleverly than that, but it should always come out. If it's going to be this frustration that's in the background, then I want to see that frustration acting more consistently rather than just have him turn out that he loved Seven all along. This antagonistic relationship they have whereby he does respect her, but he hates her, could have come out as being something like, I just kept dumping on you because I wanted to challenge you to be more, or I wanted you to prove to me that you are human, because I can see some good things in you, but I'm having trouble. But it's a throwaway line at the end that he loved her after all. And it's not consistent throughout this frustration, this hatred. It's not used for anything. It just comes up when it's needed for the plot. So again, I think he's really well set up. I can imagine loads of people hate Picard. You call it he's Cisco, and I totally get that, but there must be loads of people that felt the same way. And you would have liked to have seen some sort of performance coming up of what trouble it is to have Seven in from. The fact that he wouldn't use her name, that's massive. I am not using your Borg name. There's no Borg names on this ship. You don't really get any feel for that. Why does he refuse to use her name? That's never come up. Even in the end when he says, oh, I loved her after all. You never really get this acknowledgement of, I had to put aside that she was a Borg and this, that and the other, and that's why I'm recommending her. So, yeah, again, I think excellent idea really nice potential does just seem a bit underused yeah and he has a defined reason to dislike seven because he was at rule 359 when he looks at her all he might see is borg and i guess you wonder why she's his first officer then captains get to choose their first officers or at least they have done in the past so why would he choose her first of all or let's assume he didn't have a choice why would someone doling out assignments think let's put the former borg under the command of the guy that has unresolved Borg trauma. Yes. The guy that was at Will 359. Let's not put her on the ship of the guy who wasn't at Will 359. Let's put her under this guy. Because we're aware we're in a TV show and that'll be more interesting for TV. And if they just put a bit more nuance in his character, it wouldn't matter. I'm personally spending time with my ship's counsellor, who has advised that this would be good for me. So do you know what? I'm going to allow a Borg on my ship, but I am going to dump on her consistently because I know I can make her prove that she's still a Borg. And I won't reveal that to anybody. That'll be the frustration that's in my backstory that will eventually get revealed because my counsellor will say, you're doing it again. Somehow it'll come up. But yeah, there's no time for that in your Yeah, or I can't help it. I'm trying to see her for more than what she is, but I can't help it. That's another possibility. He has this bias that you just can't push past. Yeah, no time, not going to happen. Shame. Again, could have been good, but yeah, how was it actually done? He's another embodiment of the plot force. And even at that, a character among these legends that doesn't buy into the legend, that can be interesting. And he doesn't have to be mean-spirited about it. He just has to be not that impressed. Yeah, especially because it was only stories. None of that actually really happened the way you said it is. You've got to falsify your reports. Your captain's logs were done because you're actually a crowd pleaser. You added bits in. I'm sure if I got to the real computer records of the Enterprise, I could prove that 
it didn't all really happen. Easily believe that. So yeah, loads of things could have been done. And they actually had an interesting thing. Now that I'm thinking about it, the conversation was had by the wrong two people because you have that scene where Jordy speaks to Sydney, his daughter, and says, "Don't get caught up in the romance of this," because she's talking about loyalty and doing the right thing and all that stuff, and he warns her the fact that her objectivity might be clouded by the fact that she's around these titans of the she's on the titan hilarious but these titans of starfleet these celebrities and there are people that she's heard stories about growing up all her life so obviously she wants to be a part of whatever their mission is and will assume that they're in the right and that they should be followed to the gates of hell there would actually be a good conversation for shaw as her captain to have don't get caught up in this stand back and look at it are these people really what you think they are do you really want to be involved in this? Is it worth your career? Is it worth your life? All of that, though, is the same problem as mentioned before. There's no time for these conversations because when the reveals are coming, when everything is being laid out, when everything's being put on the line, so much time has already passed that you've got so many characters to get through. The idea of giving over six or seven minutes to a conversation, although I suppose you wouldn't need that with that, but even so, even just half a minute, there's probably just no time for this sort of conversation and the consequences that come from it. Because if you're going to do one type of conversation like that, then you're probably going to want a few more. And it's just, no, action sequence portal gun and scary changeling that's going to speak for probably 20 minutes without actually saying anything and obviously we're not suggesting that they should have done every single thing we're suggesting here because the season would still be a mess if all that was in there if all that was in 10 episodes it would still be a mess but what you did was you threw in little morsels of everything and didn't do much with any of it so if you picked a few of these and expanded them out and dropped the things that you weren't going to cover because you don't need to cover them because they don't need to be there then you have an overall more satisfying experience because everything feels a bit more purposeful yes ultimately that's what i needed purpose meaning to this yeah so i'm not suggesting you needed to have an arc where sydney makes up her own mind about the situation after being caught up in the romance and celebrity of the moment but she's there and she has that conversation with her father about loyalty and doing the right thing. And there's a better way you can do that. Well, arguably, there are several characters that don't need to be here. And Georgie's two daughters are some of those. It's nice for him to have a personal connection. It's nice for the crew of the Titans to have a family in them rather than just being the young ones. So there's more of a threat to it. They're not just minions. Because they don't do anything with it, it is just another idea that is nice. For all that they get used, you'd be as good as Geordie saying at the end what I said before, I'm sorry, Captain, but I'm going to go to this other ship because my two daughters that we've not met here are on them. But given this is a show about family... We all understand that I'm definitely doing that. And he comes in for his cameo appearance and he leaves because they don't really get used for any more than that. So you're starting to think there are people that we could have cut here, weirdly, for what they used him for. Jack could have been replaced by a computer core that they're carrying around, an item that is just important to Picard, an old relic that he picks up from one of his archaeological digs. Yeah, you get some nice scenes between the two actors talking, but at the end, it's just, can we get the thing out of the Borg computer or not? Yes, there is technically a personal angle to it, but it's not really emotionally moving. It's not really something where I have to make you think of all the time we've spent together and convince you to change your philosophy. 
they just have a discussion. Jack realizes that humans are the best after all and unplugs himself. So there's plenty of characters that you could easily cut down here. And it's actually quite disturbing that I think cutting Jack is possible without really affecting the plot. Considering the season was built around him. Exactly. It shouldn't be possible because I argued right from the start that Picard's legacy in a child is one of the most important things to him. But like I said also at the start, I did not manage to make an emotional connection to this. Despite that starting point, despite Borg and child, still couldn't connect to it. I don't think they offered me enough on that. So yeah, I stand by it. Based on what they wanted, fine. No, it couldn't be. But based on what they gave me, sorry. Could have been. Yeah, and then on Jordy as well, in terms of how little he gets to do, there is that conflict between him and Sydney that lasts a minute or two, where Jordy seems to be annoyed at her for not following in his footsteps, and then by the end of the episode, he's okay with the fact that she's following her own path. But someone seems to have missed that Jordy was the helmsman of the Enterprise in the first season of The Next Generation. She is literally following in its footsteps. You don't need to watch or go through the previous story when you're writing a sequel. That's well established in modern writing. When you write a sequel... Your plot is much more important than anything that came before. So reading somebody else's stuff would be a betrayal of your own good writing. It must be that, because nobody bothers. But the question there is, what is his issue, right? She's in Starfleet, so she may not be literally following in exactly the thing that he did, as in going into engineering, but she's in Starfleet, so she's followed him in some way. But also, why does he not like that she's doing her own thing? Because parents have to have difficulties with their children, because Picard's having difficulty with Jack. Therefore, Geordie must have that issue too. Not that they'll do anything, not that they'll have a conversation about being parents. Actually, maybe they do, I can't even remember. They do, yeah. Not one that's that massively important. It doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't change anybody's mind on anything, I don't think. The point of that conversation is for Geordie to be the experienced father, speaking to the inexperienced father and explaining where the feelings that Picard now has come from. That's the point of that scene. In that case, yes, the dealings between Geordie and his particular daughters is irrelevant because that could just be when she was a teenager, she said something. When she was a child, she did something. So, yes, it's fake surface level importance with no deeper thought given to it. You also got that earlier in the season from Riker as well. You get the bit where when I heard that there was a complication during birth, that turbo lift ride was the longest 17 seconds of my life. So much so that they named an episode after it. And the episode ends with Picard in that same 17 second turbo lift ride. Or it's in the episode. Yeah. Potentially if you sat down with some of the producers, I don't know if I can say writers, but maybe I can. They would challenge a lot of what we've said because of this. Because they'd say, but the theme of Picard is family. Every parent is having trouble with their children so the theme is there you'd want to turn around and go yeah i know you've colored every character with the same brush that doesn't make it an emotionally important thing it just means that parents have children i actually already knew that see that everywhere so yes they had a theme but i think it becomes another one like you've said in general something that's unexplored yeah, and Jordy also talks to Picard about children pick up your flaws as well as your virtues, and that's something that you have to deal with as a parent. And I guess that ends up being foreshadowing for the whole Borg reveal, because Jack literally gets the worst of Picard. It is that, but it's one of those things where, is it foreshadowing? Technically, yes. We said something and it came true later, but 
if you don't hang some emotions on that, then it's just someone says something and an action is taken. So I have no doubt that that was following the rules of storytelling very well, but missing out some of the other rules of storytelling about how you have to give it that consequence. Because where on earth does Picard use that knowledge to somehow better deal with it? Yes, he's got your flaws, right. What does that mean? How am I going to use my flaws to better both of us? How are we going to turn this around? They're just pointing out the colour of the wallpaper they've used. The basic idea is Picard figuring out what it means to be a parent, but that's all it really is. And then back to the conflict between Geordi and Sydney, it doesn't need to be there at all because he's annoyed that she's doing a job that he didn't do. Or he did do, but doesn't do now. He doesn't remember doing. Yeah, but I don't understand why he would be annoyed by that. One thing they could have done to fix it, I'm not saying it would be much good, but she's not Sydney LaForge, she's Sydney whatever her mother's maiden name is. And she did that because she didn't want to be Geordie's daughter in her career. She wanted to make it in her own way, but Geordie thinks she's ashamed of the family name or something. You can get something from that, but maybe her mum's even more famous. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, none of them mentioned the mother. Everyone imagines it's Leah Brahms, who, I don't know if it was in that booby trap episode that I mentioned earlier. She had a husband, though. That was the whole point. Yeah, but if you watch All Good Things in the possible future, he mentions Leah being his wife and the two daughters, which are Sydney and Alandra, funnily enough. So they've just taken it from that. So that's why I'm thinking, if they point out who Jordy's wife is, it's going to be her. She left her husband, had kids with him, and then that's it. Fair enough, yeah. Stuff like that happens, I guess. They don't say it in the season. They just say, your mother. Yeah. But that's my head canon. It doesn't matter either way. But imagine they introduce Sydney as Sydney Brahms. And there's less of a stigma attached to it, I suppose. As in, people don't look at her differently because they don't know who Leah Brahms is. Yeah. But they know who Jordy LaForge is. Yeah, there's no time for any of that there. No one really knows who the names on the Enterprise blueprints are. Other than uber nerds like Jordy. And even he didn't know until he had to look into it. Yep. And then the kids just vanish. His other daughter doesn't do anything. And Sydney is really only defined by the fact that she's Jordy's daughter, funnily enough, yeah. which could have been the central conflict there. I'm sick of being your daughter. I'm my own person. Could have been it. Also, she kind of has a thing with Jack that doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, presumably because somebody looked at the rules of storytelling and said there must be a romance in there. So we'll just put that in. These two actors are young and attractive. Naturally, they'll be drawn to one another. The CW rules yes. <laughs> of relationship building. Although I did like that she was horrified when he possessed her. That was at least a reaction I could understand. Sure, and absolutely bring that into episode four or five or six when he's established. We know what the problem is and his powers are coming and he's starting to come into his own. Have her have been there for two episodes to really fall for him and then have the problem. Make a deal out of it. Make it emotional. Whereas somebody you've got a crush on finds you a bit disturbing and decides that they don't have a crush on you anymore. Yeah, welcome to teenage life. People fall in and out of crushes all the time. It's just a thing. Or early 20s in those characters' cases. Well, I just mean to say that it's so common that it occurs earlier than that in the lifespan. It's just such a normal thing. Well, actually, for everybody, you meet somebody, you have an initial attraction, then they open their mouth and speak, and you think, oh, you're horrible, and you walk away. Any number of times things like that can occur. I thought they were hot, and then I found out they were a massive racist, and I couldn't see past it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's all it was. It was just this tiny little throwaway thing. We met on Tinder, we discovered we hate each other. Bye, and it's over. But span it over several episodes, make it a big deal. Have her helping him 
deal with his problems, but then decide that she suddenly can't because he takes it to a level that she can't cope with. Sorry, I'm not a counsellor, I'm out. I mean, this season isn't terribly interested in the young characters, which you could expect because it's about Picard. And No, nor should it be yeah, for that. The same commentator that talks about the Dominion War complicity thing made reference to the, the plot is essentially only boomers can save zoomers from the woke mind virus. <laughs> which I think is a very extreme reading of the Borg plot, but there's something in there. As in, you kids on your phones and your TikTok are ruining the world, and only us old guys who don't use TikTok can fix it. A little bit of a reversal to just say, yes, experience does count for something. Fair enough. But put it in a nice, fun way. Why not? <laughs> like I said, it was an extreme take. Oh, yeah, sure. It's not funny if you just say experience counts for something. So, yeah, you've got to push it a bit. I suppose there is something of a dismissal of that next generation as well, as in they can't do anything. None of the young characters really have much agency in the plot at all, which is unrealistic. It's an interesting contrast to what's coming in other places as well, because we've had a lot of stories where older people are coming out of retirement to do things again. The action franchise, The Expendables, is about the ageing action heroes of old, showing the young guys how it's done sort of thing. Han Solo acting as a mentor for Ray, Or even just Liam Neeson in Taken. He's an older actor who wouldn't traditionally be in an action role like that anymore, but now he is. They called this subgenre Jerry Action at one point, where there was a few examples of Taken clones that were doing that sort of thing. But if you look at the Undiscovered Country, the final original series film, that story is largely about how Kirk and his crew recognise that they need to get out of the next generation's way and let them build their own world. Whereas Picard seems to be saying the opposite. We need to come back and fix this for them. I think there's a danger here that was taught to me in English as a kid, even though it was not the real lesson, it's the one I picked up anyway, where they said, we're going to analyse every single word of Wilfred Owen's poems (laughs) and find out the meaning behind every single placement. And it was never at once acknowledged that even the great Wilfred Owen might occasionally just think, I need a word here, I'm going to put this one in. Everything else is genius, but I just need to fill this one. I've hit a block, this word will join these two sentences. Absolutely. And that was never considered. Every word had to be genius because it was genius. So I think there's a possibility there that we read into Picard some commentary on age when I think it's more likely that they just ran out of time. They've got so many characters, the majority of them are old. They put the younger ones in because they had to, and they come across as having no agency, not through purposeful writing, but just because there wasn't enough time. Yeah. And that's arguably something that in science fiction, whose genre is very connected to the changes in society, are we going to go more woke? Are we going to have the backlash against it? Maybe they should have considered that because they knew they were going to be analysed. Or you can flip it and say, no, not everything has to be that. And we just have to acknowledge that this one wasn't a political commentary. I actually would have preferred them to have just committed one way or the other remove the ambiguity by thinking about it because thinking about what you're doing before you do it is usually not wrong in constructed art. If it's, will I enjoy this at a swimming pool? I probably wouldn't put a lot of essay thought into it. I'm just going to jump in the water. But when it comes to this sort of art form, especially Star Trek, that's all about considering the moral values. Yeah, I would rather they just thought it through, decided their themes, 
pick the ones that are going to be and then make sure the others aren't in it. So I don't think there was any thought towards commentary at all. No, you're probably right. And yeah, there should be some awareness of the fact that your audience is going to be thinking about it. So you should too. I think that's a good idea. And especially for Star Trek and especially with the internet the way it is at the moment, especially because you're known to be someone that tackles issues. I think it's a responsibility to yourself as writers to do it, not to the audience. I think you should just do it for the responsibility to Star Trek. So I'm bothered that I don't think they did more than in one way or another. The foundation of analysis is a possible reading is. You're not saying that what you've delivered is absolute truth. You're just saying that you interpret it based on these factors. Mm. And yes, I don't think there's enough evidence to really state categorically either way whether they plan to deliver that story or not. Especially when the people writing it aren't as old as Patrick Stewart is. So you have to think they fall in the middle of that. Where do the people in the middle of that sit? You've got Shaw in the middle of that. He's the current generation, I suppose, isn't he? He's the of-age Starfleet captain. Yeah. So what's life like for him? And then you've got the next generation who are people like Sydney. Again, what does Starfleet and the Federation and the universe look like to her? And then you've got the older guys. Because they do suggest early in the season that Picard and so on are still scrambling for relevance. Is that a part of it? Of course, you have the Borg angle. Who better to deal with the Borg than... Someone like Picard. Well, probably Seven, actually, because she has way more experience with the Borg than Picard does. Yeah. They do play around with their ages a lot because they sort of have to and because it's funny. And I did like the jokes that Riker makes with Picard early on when they talk about their various medical conditions, meaning they're not ideally suited to figure out who's storming the ship. And it's nice when it comes in. My heart's racing and my knees are in agony or whatever it is they say. But it's just a joke. Yeah. I will always struggle with that, actually. I'm, I'm known as the one who doesn't like fun. I don't have any problem with there being comedy in Star Trek, but it bothers me if you're just going to make it fun and take away the meaning and the purpose. And that's how it came across to me. There's all these jokes, and that's fine, but if you're not having any meaning behind it, then it's not juxtaposition anymore. You're saying you're writing a comedy. Yeah. And I know that they're not, but it almost comes across that way. And then with that whole, only the old people can save the young people from TikTok and the internet and stuff like that. And yeah, it's a reading because it's all about network computers and advancing technology. And it's the old guys in their rickety old school analog, even though the Enterprise D cannot possibly be analog. So it's very strange that they use that <laughs> word specifically. But they've come in with their old ship that doesn't conform to the new standards and it's better because it's not connected etc etc they did that better in Battlestar Galactica the Cylons can't blow us up because our computers are crap and old and that's what saved us by accident we didn't know it just happened to work out that way. and then you had later on the Pegasus its computers were accidentally offline when the attack happened so they were able to survive it stuff like that but by the time the Borg stuff was happening and they'd taken over the entire fleet and assimilated everybody under 25 somehow, I kind of checked out and stopped crediting them with doing anything clever by that point. I didn't even get to the point of thinking they were doing something interesting or trying to do something interesting with the ages of all the characters they have around. It was just a way of making sure that they didn't hit the old crew of yeah. the Enterprise D. That's all it was. It wasn't clever. It was just that. Yeah, it was luck. Luckily, the Borg couldn't assimilate anybody in this way over the age of 25 for some reason, which is just a happenstance. But by that point, I was just thinking, oh, God, the stakes are unimaginably high again. We have no actual personal connection to any of it. We don't see anybody on Earth, which is apparently hours from destruction. 
We don't see anybody on space stock. It's just stuff happening. There's nothing to invest in because you're not getting any of that personal touch. The closest you get is Seven and Rafi on the Titan, along with other people that didn't make the cut for assimilation, the cook, for example. But even, as you say, they don't do anything. No. Not of value, anyway. No. It would have been so easy to increase the stakes in a more realistic way. The Borg sent some of the ships to Jupiter to take on the, the Enterprise to back up the Borg cube instead of firing everything at space dock. If we send 10 ships to Jupiter, it'll take us another five minutes to blow up space dock. We can spare it. Yeah. It's weird because you have three different things in that finale that are happening, three different settings, and none of them really talk to each other. The Titan fighting for Earth. Well, you know they're not going to win because they're only one ship. And don't really know what they're trying to do either because they already acknowledge that they can't do anything meaningful. I think that's the nature of there being no emotional stakes, no through plot, no arc to hang everything on. Everything does just have to be a series of events at that point. This, 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 this then happens. And then the Enterprise D, they blow up the Borg ship, but nothing that happens on the Borg cube has any bearing on whether they do that or not. Yeah, it's a series of events. This happens and this happens and this happens. No purpose to it. Which reminded me of Return of the Jedi in two ways. One is flying inside the massive structure to blow it up. And then the other is the Emperor and Vader and so on. They're going down regardless of what Luke does. He has actual no bearing on the external forces that are at play. Which is why that film is an excellent example of how to do that rather than Picard, because even though it has no bearing on the other plot, you still care about Luke. You still know that this is very crucial to a different setup, which is the potential end of the Jedi. Everything about that scene in front of the Emperor is meaningful and powerful. Even if you just bring it down to the familial connection of Luke and his father, everything is meaningful because we've set up the plot to bring it to there. It just so happens that they are two separate plot lines running in the same time period. They don't need to overlap in terms of consequence. They overlap in terms of theme and they overlap in terms of the characters that we know and value and like and want to see what's happening to them. So Jedi works really well still because it has meaning, it has purpose, which, as I've said many times, is something Picard Season 3 doesn't have. And then the fact that you're not emotionally invested in the action on the cube means that it's more apparent that there's no actual connection. Mm. In an ideal, nicely plotted setup, Jack's choice would be what helps destroy the Borg. They can't do it unless he chooses to leave them because he's keeping the shield up or something like that, whatever. It doesn't have to be a deep connection, but having one would enhance it in some way. Having one is a way of making it work. I admit that, and it's an easy way of making it work, but it doesn't need to be that. At that point, in a well-constructed plot, you could let Seven and Rafi save Earth, and you could let the old crew, whose time has passed, be nothing to do with that anymore. They've gone to save Jack, and that's important because it's Picard's son. And you can let the new people in the middle age group that you've talked about save Earth. It's their time now which the ending gives you. The ending is very much, it is your time, it is your ship, you're going on from here. I mean, pretty much say they're going to have a new series. So let them have that. And then, yeah, Picard and Rika and Beverly, their time is gone. What's important to them now? Saving Jack. Family stuff, that's what's important to them. Disconnect it completely. 
The connections can be gone at the end of episode 9, make it full-on Jedi, and episode 10 is showing you what happens to Picard, as the series says it's going to be. So I, I admit, yeah, connection could be a way of making it work, but you could have divorced it and it still would have been really powerful. Yeah, and even at that, they don't explain why Jack is important to the Borg, because all he does is plug himself in and say stuff. Yeah, there's no time for it. It's too late. It's episode 9. Should have been in episode 3. Easily. For all those reasons. So how is Jack embracing the Borg important to their survival? It doesn't seem like it is, because they've already won. Mm, Doesn't matter. No meaning to it, no purpose to it. Should have been set up all the way along. They needed this particular setup, they needed him to come back. No, too late. I did like the scene inside the Borg Mines Palace, where Picard appeals to him on an emotional level, because it was well acted, and it brought back up the idea of Picard being someone that struggles to let other people in and then oh jack you're the same as me because this is fiction and in fiction these things are passed down genetically nurture isn't a thing we have no control over who we become because we're destined to become our parent it's a shakespearean thing isn't it what you should have had in that scene was the queen being the opposite voice being the one trying to tempt jack into rejecting picard because otherwise she's just standing out there spouting nonsense yeah more purpose Bring them into the plot. Give them rally. Absolutely. And one thing I liked that they did, actually, in season two was with the Borg Queen, they explored the psychological component to assimilation. Up until that point, all we'd seen is they get injected in the neck and that's it. It's like being bitten by a zombie. You're bitten by a zombie, you have a matter of time before you become one. Simple as that. But they talk about it being this euphoric thing this idea of preying on people's anxieties in order to offer them a way out of that anxiety and the way out is obviously it's false it's artificial it's this false perfection but i quite like the idea of the psychological component the fact that the borg have to break their victims mentally as well as physically in order to control them and i thought they were going to do that again here with jack well they said that they were doing it but they didn't really again not enough time don't listen to her jack listen to me obviously we've seen it a million times before but The setup was there, and I wonder if the writer feels like they're really clever for subverting that by not including it, but a good subversion is when you replace it with something better rather than just ignore it and not have it. You actually hear a lot of that in modern stuff where writers talk about how they're subverting expectations. Well, you are. You set up something and then didn't do it. You did technically subvert my expectations, but you did it by making it worse. So how does that make you better? You took something away you didn't add in, yeah. Yeah, the best subversion of expectations is... We've set up this and we've delivered you this that's better because it's different and it takes it in a different direction that you could never have predicted. But it was all predictable. I mean, as soon as the Borg were revealed, I knew that was coming because it just seemed obvious at that point. When I was watching episode nine the first time and the door opened and there was a Borg cube behind it, I audibly swore, even though I was the only one in the room, unless you count the cat. I can talk to the cat. He didn't care, though. It's just because I was so frustrated by how predictable it was all being. And it was even they tried to delay that reveal until the last possible second by having Troy run away from Jack and not tell him immediately. How long can you tease this? Just so dumb. The 10 trillion Dalek problem, interesting you bring that up. Do you think the Borg are wiped out by this? Oh, I'd lost track, actually. I didn't even realise where they were beforehand, let alone where they ended up. The difficulty is, it's sort of a who cares. In Voyager... In the finale, they deal a crippling blow to the Borg by destroying a transwarp network, and they infect the Queen, who's played by the same actress as she is here, with a pathogen of some sort that disrupts our control, and they destroy the complex at the centre of the collective. But my working assumption based on that was they'll be fine. They'll pick up the pieces eventually. 
thought the whole point of the Borg was redundancy. So they're supposed to be decentralised. But no, it seems like there's a single point of failure and that's a good idea. I think we discussed before how the Queen was introduced because studio execs were nervous that audiences wouldn't like a disembodied voice as your main antagonist. So we've been kind of suffering the consequences of that ever since in terms of the overuse of the Queen as this centralised point of failure. And yeah, it seems to have proven to be a dumb idea. Maybe the best way for the Borg to evolve is go back to being a collective with no queen or several queens, which they already have anyway. As soon as you tug on a thread like that, it just falls apart, which is disappointing. I did like the scale of the ship versus Enterprise D, though. As a visual thing, that was quite cool. I don't think I could take it seriously at that point. It was just way bigger and the Enterprise D was really small. That was something. So let's move on to fan service then. This show was rife with it, and basically they were trying to appeal to any diehard fans of not just TNG, but Star Trek in general. They had a lot of winks and nods that were supposed to activate that area of your brain that says, I understood that reference. Insert Captain America meme here from the Avengers where he says, I understood that reference. So the fan service, you don't have as great a connection to Star Trek as I do. So did you notice a lot of it? And how did you feel about it? I only noticed the... STNG references, really. That's what I was looking for, though. So maybe if I sat down with a microscope and went through it, I would have seen more. But first viewing, that's all I saw. And for me, it's a bit like we have done or will do whatever meme you want to set up with the Time Travel podcast. If it's done well, then it is well done. And I want to see it thoughtfully done rather than just being chucked in everywhere, except if it is purely supposed to be just an Easter egg. If it is just I got that reference just for the fun, I'm never going to be against Easter eggs because that really is something for people that want to go in there and see it and like that. And that's all it's supposed to be. You get an Easter egg, it's a quick hit of sugar, you move on, and it's well named that. You find that egg, you consume it, it's done. So I'm definitely not against Easter eggs at all. I think that's fine. If it's more full-on fan service, then that's the bit I want to be well thought out and used. And it doesn't bother me to see it, therefore. It's not offensive. I think we've already mentioned earlier in this podcast, the sitting around the table. So if they sit around the table and they solve a problem, as they used to sit around a table and solve a problem, then I think that's a really good thing because it is going back and saying, you remember this. This is what they used to do. They're doing it again. And it is a proper farewell. They get to come back as older versions of themselves, recapture their youth as we all would love to do. And make the most of that, even enjoy it amongst themselves. So them sitting around the table is not offensive to me in and of itself because it could be recapturing that lost youth. But I would like to see it done with good purpose. So if they just sit around the table and start playing ping pong, well, then you're not recapturing that lost youth. If they sit around the table and they solve a problem like they used to, then I am taken back. I am traveling back in time in my own head and I'm where I used to be. And that is a feeling of enjoyment, it's a feeling of comfort, it's a feeling of pleasure. And that is a successful use of fan service because it has evoked those emotions. So it has to be thoughtful, but I can imagine that if you went through all of Picard, you could sort things out. These ones are thoughtful and maybe these ones weren't. Yeah, the round the table thing 
we've discussed it before, but that wasn't necessarily purposeful because they were just there. They weren't really doing anything. In fact, in that scene, Riker says, we have almost no answers, which I thought was hilarious. It's kind of darkly hilarious because it's an indictment of the show itself. The end of episode eight, Riker admits, we don't know anything. You can't point that out, show, because you're not going to subvert that in any way. It's that classic issue of your stupid plotting doesn't get any less stupid because you make reference to it. But to me, the problem with that is not that they were sitting around the table. The problem with that is because they didn't properly evoke the past whereby they sat around the table to problem solve. And usually one of them brought, as we said earlier, the emotion to it, and then the others brought Starfleet rationality to it. And then Picard had to make a decision. It wasn't always an easy decision. Sometimes it led to more problems, but that was what was missing. So I'm not offended by them sitting around the table. I just think that it could have been done better. Yeah. And that was but one example of fan service. And yes, the distinction between Easter eggs and fan service is an interesting one because Easter eggs don't lift you out of what you're watching necessarily. Some of them do because some of them don't work or some of them are jokes that are intended to amuse and don't connect in the way that they're supposed to. And this show had a lot of Easter eggs. And I didn't really mind them because they weren't narrative points. There'd be a name mentioned or you'd see something written on a screen or whatever else. Even Metallus Prime is a planet that's an Easter egg because the showrunner's name is Terry Metallus. Which actually is a planet that was introduced in Enterprise and was named after Terry Metallus, who was a low-level employee at the time Mm -hmm. on the show. So... There's a callback that you can dig deep into, I suppose. Some of the more obnoxious fan service for me was the constant references to Wrath of Khan. I've said on many other podcasts that Star Trek has been ripping off Wrath of Khan since Nemesis. And it's been doing it quite obnoxiously. We had basically four films in a row, including Nemesis, that involved a villain bent on revenge with a big black death ship. Khan didn't have a big black death ship. He had a pretty normal Starfleet ship. But they had to escalate it in the subsequent rip-offs with, oh, look, this villain has a huge vessel that's way more powerful than us, and they want revenge, which wasn't the point of Wrath of Khan, really. It was part of it, but the point of Wrath of Khan was Kirk coming to terms with the fact that he was getting older, dealing with Spock's death eventually, actually meaningfully confronting a no-win scenario, as is set up early in the film. There's all these elements of Wrath of Khan that they don't seem to understand. They just seem to copy it on a superficial level. Here's that thing that was good. Star Trek fans like it. So therefore, if we copy it, our thing will be good. And you can see shades of Khan and Vadic in the way that, again, she wants revenge and has a giant ship that can kill them all. And she's also a bit of a callback to her father, actually, as in Christopher Plummer. Amanda Plummer is Christopher Plummer's daughter because he played a villain in Star Trek VI. So she does that thing where she's very theatrical. She spins around in her chair like he did. So even then, that's a callback. But that's an okay callback, because unless you know about that relationship, it's not distracting by itself. My problems with Vadic were the depth wasn't there. They didn't do enough with her to make her an engaging villain. I don't really have issue with the fact that, yes, they're referencing Star Trek VI because she turns in her chair. That's fine. That's an affectation. It's absolutely fine. But there's so many nods to Wrath of Khan. There's music cues, plot points, sound effects even. Vadic's little wrist majig thing in episode 7 has the exact same sound as the tricorders in Wrath of Khan. And obviously that's put in there to remind people that 
know the film well enough to recognise that sound effect. And again, that's not obnoxious by itself, but I think when you add up all the Wrath of Khan nods that were in there, it adds up as being pretty obnoxious as a whole. I'm fortunate then that I didn't notice any of that. The most I would have got would be some sort of subconscious association, but that would have failed on me as well because I didn't watch a lot of the Chris Pine era, and it's been an age since I saw the original Wrath of Khan, so it didn't even register. So maybe it did subconsciously. That's a good thing maybe for me then. I was able to just skip over that. Yeah, maybe. So you talked about TNG references. There was a lot of those. We talked about one of them earlier when I mentioned the referenced insurrection being a possible inroad for Picard to remember a type that he disobeyed orders for something that he believes in. But they made lots of little comments. Most of the time it was Shaw listing stuff to prove how reckless the TNG crew were, which I think kind of misses the point because Next Generation crew were not reckless. It was kind of the point of them. They were the anti-original series in a lot of ways, much more deliberate and slow-paced and things like that. But the way that Shaw talks is if they're a bunch of cowboys flying around the galaxy getting in trouble, which wasn't really the case. And then you had Crusher saying things about Jean-Luc Picard-sized enemies, as if Picard was in mortal danger every week. Which, of course, if you've watched Next Generation, you know that he wasn't. You'd have entire episodes where his life wasn't threatened at all. So that seems to be one of those, here's what we want the past to be like, to suit our narrative, but it wasn't. Well, I'm on record almost every single podcast of saying I'm against the plot force. There's two manifestations of this now there's the modern disavowing of the past or thinking of the past as irrelevant you don't seem to have to watch dr strange one or the avengers in order to write dr strange two for example you can just do whatever you want and i don't know if that's just because people can't be bothered or if they just don't think the audience cares but it's just not seen as important But then there's also the old-fashioned, willful, I'm glorious, my story is excellent. I need to assume everybody that came before me is rubbish, and therefore I can just rewrite that because my plot needs it. And it's been something that I've read about all too often to bore anybody with here, but just that idea of the plot is more important than anything else, and my story is more important than anybody else's. This gets to be treated in isolation because the message is important. Though both of them, when you add them together, are always going to be disliked by a large portion of any audience even if only because no we liked our characters you can't just change them guess what if we had to choose between our characters and you the producer director writer we would always choose the person we love most and we love our character why is that even surprise we even grew up with this person you're just a name on a screen i don't care about you you could tell me that you're an amazing artist and you've created 16 amazing films before now and i should trust you because of that Well, no, I've not necessarily seen any of those. And even if I did, who's to say they're in a genre or on a subject matter that I wanted to watch? Maybe you did write an excellent episode of Dawson's Creek 30 years ago. That doesn't mean that I think every Star Trek episode you're going to create is amazing. All of that is dangerous when it comes together, and I don't think any of it is easy to defend. And yet it happens all the time. Terry Metallus, big show before this was 12 Monkeys, which I haven't seen, but apparently it's good, but... Because you're good at 12 Monkeys doesn't mean you'll be good at Star Trek. And also, 12 Monkeys wasn't a vehicle to reference 
the previous 12 monkeys too heavily I'm guessing because you only have one film and the 12 monkey series as I understand it is 12 monkeys in name only it's one of those situations where someone had an idea for a TV show and the network said call it 12 monkeys and we'll make it yeah it's to invite that association just by name to get people to watch yes and then when they watch they get this completely different show which I'm kind of okay with that's a good example of compromise with the people that are giving you the money to do your thing. They didn't have to use the old characters, though, in Carl Brunker's TV series in the same way, I don't think. So, yeah, they're riffing off something, and it should be connected, but they're not saying, let's take Bruce Willis's character and everybody he meets and explicitly expand on that story. So, yeah, it's a different thing. It's the same with Teen Wolf, from what Kat's been saying, as in the names are the same as the film but the show is completely different. It has no connection to the film other than the superficial aspects of the names and the title of the show. So again, it's one of those, I've got this really good idea for this werewolf story, and then it's okay, but change the names and call it Teen Wolf, and then we'll let you make it. Arguably even Buffy, the most famous one in our subculture that we're all now embracing, they reimagined it to the TV series. It is, of course, similar, but when the characters come in, they have to deal with a lot more stuff because there's going to be a much greater time frame to work over. So they needed to introduce a lot more just so they could have those plots. Yeah, they use the... Buffy movie is loose source material, so they'll reference the events of the film in the TV show sometimes. But in the film, Buffy's a senior at high school, I think, and in the in the TV show, she's a bit younger because you need to go through the whole of high school because that gives you three seasons of television. So they reference her burning down the gym and things like that, which is something you can see in the film. But yeah, it's not the same thing. And I guess Stargate's a bit like that, isn't it? The TV series bounced off of the film. The film is technically the pilot of the TV series, but they change a lot, don't they, between the two? Yeah, I think it's the same thing. They have to have a simple, not a simple, sorry, they have to have a simpler plot line to be dealt with in 90 minutes, as films used to be, I don't know if it is or not, but around that time. If you're going to develop 9 to 15 series across spin-offs as well, you're always going to need a more complicated setup. So it just needed to be that way. That's fine. Some of the references, anyway, to get back to this, in the episodes were a bit confusing. For example, the first episode opens with Beverly listening to one of Picard's log entries from The Best of Both Worlds. It's an obvious callback. And when you think about it, it actually foreshadows the return of the Borg. It tells you in almost the opening scene where we're going to be doing the Borg because... She's listening to that specific log entry. And this series, in some ways, is a sequel to that. But you don't know that at the time. But then it invites the obvious question of why is she listening to that? Does she just sit and listen to old log entries? Why? There's no reason for it to be there other than, oh, God, I remember that. That's the meaningless versus substantial fan service thing that I've been trying to get at. I suppose that could be, and I don't remember it well enough, but it, it could be the... Writers following the quote rules of storytelling, but it's potentially feels insulting to just assume it is. So potentially somebody sat down and said, right, foreshadowing is a necessary thing. So what will I do? All right, I'll put in this reference to the Borg early on so that when the Borg come up, I've foreshadowed it. Okay, yeah, all right. But if you're just doing it because a piece of paper and a rule set tells you to, you've of course missed the point because. The foreshadowing is obviously supposed to be a much more emotional thing than that. 
again, coming down to fan service versus Easter eggs, it's supposed to be more of an emotional connection where you go, oh, oh my God, this meant that. And I never realized at the time, rather than just this tick box, this intellectual exercise of, oh, yeah, you're right. You did say the word Borg earlier on. That does mean you've got the word Borg into more episodes than I thought you had. One is emotional and one of them is at best an exercise in collection. Now, I don't know if it was that, but all of a sudden it sounds like that. It sounds like it was supposed to be somebody trying to use an Easter egg to foreshadow with. Those two things are most definitely different things. You can't do that. They're two different rule sets. So I don't know. It sounds like a misapplication of the, quote, rules. Yeah, and it just stands out because there's no reason for her to be listening to that. It's just on when she's on her ship. No, what we wanted was to have an explanation of her current state of mind. What we wanted was potentially what we've already referred to I don't know if it was you or me, but the idea that in the last 20, 30 years, however long it's been, I can imagine these characters are completely different. They've had so many extra experiences. And then I think it was me that talked about, I can imagine that Beverly could have been somebody who, without the framework of the Enterprise around her, keeping her on an even keel, she lost it emotionally because of the pressures of working in border space. And it could be that she, after all this time, has come to regret that, oh, I'm not the person I used to be. I'm, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I've compromised myself. All of a sudden, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to reconnect with your past. What was it? What was I like back then? What was it that kept me on an even keel? I will watch log entries of the people that I loved and trusted. And it could be that that's her spark, her thought that she wants to recover who she was. And this is the first step to doing it. And maybe the second step is then going, not I can't trust anybody else, but I know I trust these people. These were the people that kept me right. Starfleet isn't the thing that was doing it. It was actually these people. So do you know what? I'm going to call in Picard because I also have a great emotional connection with him anyway. So there's double the reason to call him in. And then you'd also give her an arc because I don't really know that she had much of an arc in this. She is a source of plot. But she's not really somebody who goes through an emotional arc. She's a mother who loves her child. Okay, get that. But that's all she is throughout. She doesn't change. She doesn't change her opinion of anything. So that could have been used for even greater purpose beyond our plot to give her yeah, an emotional journey. Yeah, she references having lost her moral compass, but you never see her getting it back. No. It's just sort of resolved off screen. And then she comes up with a solution to the transporter assimilation thing off screen as well that's just hand waved away at the last minute that's fine now we can just get rid of this this existential threat we can just get rid of it it happened easily no yeah. problem oh also we can find changelings in the transporter now right. both problems are completely solved and we didn't have to do anything to attain it brilliant there was another reference to best of both worlds it was an inaccurate reference to best of both worlds that was in the same episode it's when they're trying to decode Beverly's coordinates. And Riker says, you were incapacitated at the time, but there was a virus that infected the Enterprise's computers that made everything display as threats. And Picard's like, oh, yes, when I was Locutus. And Riker's like, yes, that's when it happened. And then I'm sitting there thinking, there is no virus in Best of Both Worlds. That didn't happen. What they're actually referencing is the episode Cause and Effect, the time loop episode. Yeah. Where... The solution was to send a message into the next loop so that they can survive. And it subconsciously triggers data to just deploy the number three everywhere. Yes. And then that tells him the solution is Riker's plan instead of his. Yeah. So 
that reference, it stands out because it's wrong. And it bothered me at the time. This is the reason that I had so much trouble with the second Doctor Strange film. Not, as you say, not to cross the streams too much, but it, it is important to me, this bit, actually. And I think when we came out of it, this is the reason why it did actually bother me a bit where you said, oh, I quite like that film. I didn't mind these things. And when we got into the podcast and I was saying things like, but Doctor Strange has been compromised. There are references here to things that didn't happen, shouldn't happen weren't in his character and i think it did actually bother me you said oh i didn't mind that and to me it is the same thing and it is interesting obviously to see the difference obviously star trek means a lot to you and i can't tell you that doctor strange meant a lot to me and therefore it was personal because i kind of like that character but i think i'd gotten so fed up with seeing it across so many different marvel outings even if it wasn't something that went beyond that into other science fiction, which I think it is. For me, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was just, no, I'm fed up with people just thinking that they don't have to bother with continuity. They don't have to bother with characters' history. They don't even have to keep it consistent. And I would love to know, again, with that that you've just mentioned, is it an honest human mistake? Did somebody just go into their own memory for a reference? And let's face it, it's been decades did they just make a mistake? And I have to let them off for that because I make mistakes myself. But even if it is just an honest human mistake, it's so easy to fact check. And if you're going to spend a lot of money and invest a lot of fans' time in things, I think I still want to come back to if you have the opportunity to fact check something and go back and do it, Surely you should. And if you think you're above that, now I've got a problem with you. If it's a human mistake, then again, I, I kind of don't want to challenge people on that because we're all human. But if you think you're above doing that kind of fact-checking because it doesn't matter because your plot's better anyway, or it doesn't matter because who's going to know? Well, now you're starting to insult me as the audience. So obviously I've got a problem. Well, the difference there is they're not referencing a random mid-season episode of TNG. They're referencing the best of both worlds arguably the most famous Next Generation episode. If people are going to know anything inside out, it's going to be that. Yeah. So if you're trying to tell me that, or tell the audience, that something happened in the best of both worlds that wasn't on screen, it didn't happen there. There is no virus in best of both worlds at all. It does not exist. Then possibly as a writer of the episode of Picard, you should probably know the best of both worlds really well, or as you say, go back and watch it to make sure, because it'll only take you 90 minutes. Yeah. But I wonder if it's the, we'll just forget about that because otherwise our reference here doesn't work. This is what's important to me. This is the thing. When it comes up and it's because the plot needs it, darling, I immediately hate that. Because no, it doesn't. Write better plot. Change your script such that you can make a Borg reference and do it correctly. It just can't be that hard. I do understand that, oh, we're under writing deadlines. I've been given two hours to write this script. I literally don't have time to watch a 90-minute thing because I've only given two hours. But in that case, I should be able to say, do you know what? Okay, in that case, it's not the writer's fault. You were given two hours. There is no way you could do that in that time frame. I am going to shift my blame to the production teams and just say, if you give your writers two hours to write a script, then no, I am not going to be happy with what you produce. And there's no reason I should go out there and just love it because you tell me to. So it still comes down to somebody could have done something better, even if I have to shift it from writer to production. I'm not sure if there was a tight deadline on that first episode or not, but 
No, who knows? Who can say? I think we're just agreeing that somebody could have done it differently. Somebody could have taken extra care there. Yeah. But we can't really say who that person needs to be, that's all. But with the benefit of hindsight, it does qualify as a Borg reference for the Borg turning up later. Whereas if you referenced cause and effect explicitly, it wouldn't because the Borg weren't involved in that story. Hmm. But yeah, you needed the number three apparently to decode those coordinates and tell them where they need to go next. And you didn't need a Borg reference. They could have made a reference to this other episode quite happily. It still would have been a bit of fan service or hopefully just an Easter egg because that's what it was more appropriately. And we would have gotten an equal amount of enjoyment from the delicious sugar of that Easter egg. Didn't matter whether it's Borg or not. You don't have to get the Borg into everything. But it it did feel like, what do they call it, square peg, round hole, just make it fit. Yeah, because the conversation would have worked just as well if Riker said, remember that time we were all stuck in a time loop and we engineered it so that data would see the number three everywhere or reproduce the number three everywhere? Well, I think that's what this codex getting at. Yeah. And then we'd have been like, oh yeah, I remember that episode. That was a good one. And then you'd move on. Yeah, tasty Easter egg. Did what it needed to do, moving on. Yeah. Well, the most egregious example of fan service was in the sixth episode, where you had Daystrom and you had the Fleet Museum. There was an onslaught of remember this in that episode. So let's talk a bit about stuff in Daystrom. At Daystrom, we had a few things, just some nods here and there, things like the Borg Queen's spine from First Contact, fine. A lot of them you wouldn't see unless you paused and deliberately looked for them. There is one that stands out particularly, though. James T. Kirk's corpse, recovered from Viridian 3, is in a freezer there, and people that aren't me have paused it and zoomed in and enhanced it a bit so you can read the text on the screen. There's actually a full bit of text, and it references Project Phoenix and that Kirk was critically injured, which suggests he may be alive and they've been trying to revive him in some way. And I had a real problem with that because I think it's actually a clear example of the fact that this franchise seems to be reluctant to push itself into the future. It's the snake eating its own tail at this point. It constantly seems to be trying to reference itself and pat itself on the back for just reminding you that it contains things that remind you about Star Trek. And as a fan, I find that really offensive because if you look at Star Trek in the 90s slash early 2000s when Rick Berman was in charge, his mandate was... We don't want you referencing episodes of the original series. We don't want you bringing back old characters. We don't want any of that. We want new stuff. We want you to put this franchise in a new direction. And then they did do the odd crossover or callback. Riker turned up in an episode of Voyager for a couple of minutes. Spock and Scotty turned up in episodes of Next Generation and so on. You had these odd bits of nostalgia and callbacks and cameos slash significant appearances from old characters or old situations or whatever. And when those happened, they were meaningful because they rarely happened. It was great having Scotty around for an episode because we don't get this every week. So it's nice to just revisit that and play around with his old school thinking versus the next generation crew's new school thinking. That's something that's meaningful. And it was a really good dynamic between him and Jordy, the old engineer and the new engineer and the way they do things. That was all great. But if you're just making these references and basically trying to recapture the glory days constantly, I just think the franchise will die again because it's not offering anything new. I don't think this is a Star Trek-specific problem. No, it's definitely not. We've seen all too often people just say this was popular, bring it back. We can't risk new projects because they just won't make enough money. And Everywhere is about cost savings. Everywhere is about guaranteed income streams. Every business is panicking about get this guaranteed money coming in. 
we're in the era of legacy sequels where it's this thing was good 20 years ago let's bring them all back and do it again yeah so i'm not going to blame picard for this i'm going to say this is a solid issue of the entire film and tv industry but it is there and i will agree with you that it is right to be concerned about it destroying the objects that it is inside because it always has well that's not true it hasn't always done so but the majority of this can we bring it back has not been treated well enough that people have loved it you do get the occasional thing that's come back and it's awesome but it's probably because it's become its own thing and i was just watching the new transformers trailers this morning and thinking i'm gonna hate this for all the reasons that i've hated this stuff from before but i cannot deny that somebody has taken Transformers and made it into a new thing. It's not what it was. However, that has enabled it to become popular as something by itself. And they've got infinite films out of it, no matter what I might think of them. They've done really well to keep that audience going. And they've almost rebooted their reboot successfully with Bumblebee. And I actually didn't mind Bumblebee either. Bumblebee was critically successful, but not financially successful. Oh, wasn't it? Oh, okay. So they've not necessarily succeeded. Anyway, the point is they're still making them and they've done them really well. They've done better than some of these things that produce one series or one film and then just collapse because everybody said, you just stomped on my childhood. I'm out of here. I understand what you're saying. And I actually completely agree with you on the danger there, but it is far from this show's problem. It's much wider than that. Yeah, it's a trend. Mm. A frustrating trend at that as well. I'm at the point where I'm getting really sick of all these nostalgic callbacks coming up everywhere, trying to remind me of things I used to like instead of giving me something new to like. Some of the Star Trek stuff is better at it than others. I think Discovery, a lot of people don't like that show, but I do think it is somewhat divorced, at the moment anyway, from the rest of the franchise. They do make reference to it here and there. Season 2, they brought in Pike and Spock, so that's very much a callback to bygone days. Prodigy, it has Janeway in it, but I think they've moved her forward, so I'm okay with that. I feel like her reason for being there is more than just, you remember Janeway. Plus it's aimed at kids who don't know who Janeway is, probably. You're trying to get an audience of young viewers that have no idea what Voyager is, potentially. So you kind of have to make Janeway her own thing within the context of that show, because otherwise your concept won't work. Because a lot of the people that like Voyager probably aren't even watching because... Unfortunately, some people consider animation a lower form of entertainment and just won't go near it. Lower Decks exists to be that nostalgic callback, but that's its mission statement. So it's kind of forgivable in that sense. You watch it to hear them poke fun at Star Trek. Yes, absolutely. Whereas this, I'm not after that. I'm not after Picard constantly looping back on itself. No, but it comes down to what we've already said. It's that difference between an Easter egg to be deliciously consumed for an instant and a purposeful callback that actually advances the plot in some way. So some of the things that you just listed out there, Janeway, for example, she's not an Easter egg in that. She is there to purposely advance that plot. And from what you've said, seems to do it very well. Yeah, and the Kirk's corpse thing, that technically counts as an Easter egg, because in order to really see it, you need to pause and zoom in and read the text and all that stuff. But there's something deeply concerning about it, I guess from a Starfleet point of view, because if you think about it, they've harvested the corpse of James T. Kirk And it looks like they're trying to bring him back. So that's a complete disrespect for the man's eternal rest. It's almost the same thing as Data, isn't it? We just won't let the guy die. The thing about that is, though, that at least is 
accurate for what they've set up because they've made it very clear that Section 31 is a totally evil group within the Federation that does the things that the Federation has not got the stomach to do to preserve its paradise. And if you've got a group of evil scientists who are doing the evil, then I do want to know that they are evil. I don't want to just have someone come along and go, if I twirl my moustache, you'll know I'm evil. So they do need to be doing dubious things. So for them, having this hideously evil station full of just nasty stuff that nobody else is supposed to know about, I'm all right with them having done that. Yeah, we could totally use this, Kirk. Yeah, we could do stuff with it. Yeah, that's fine. I've got plans. So that doesn't bother me as long as it does stay an Easter egg and as long as it's just to convince you that these people were horrendous. That in itself is fine. The bit that bothers me is if it's a way of somebody then leapfrogging into a new TV series in three years' time called Kirk. Now I'm bothered because that's not what I want. As long as it's just scientists doing dodgy things, fine. But no, I, I don't need another stepping stone to another hailback TV show. Good luck convincing Shatner to do that, if he's even still alive by then. Oh, well, he'd have to be a clone of somebody else, and he'd be younger and they get Chris Pine or whatever, who knows. It's just a way for them to do their exposition in the first episode. And they'll call back to Picard, you remember in Picard when you saw this, well, we have cloned him and here's your new TV series. They've got Paul Wesley playing the character in Strange New World, so we cloned him and made him younger, but he has yeah, all they... the knowledge of the version of him that died. Absolutely. You like Kirk, so you'll watch this series, won't you? <laughs> now that we've said that, it'll come true. One of those things. Also in Daystrom, they have Picard's body, which is a big reveal at the end of the episode. They stole human remains and it's Picard's body, which is apparently more dangerous than a portal gun somehow. Yeah, there was already several plots that you had to just don't look at the man behind the curtain. Nothing here. Please don't analyse this too much. Just enjoy the ride. And I've been many a times accused of being the person who cannot just enjoy the ride when I should. But I do come back to if it is an enjoy the ride show, then I do think it should tell me that at the start. And you just brought up Lower Decks. When I'm watching Lower Decks, they pretty much in the first opening setup said just enjoy this don't think about it it's not that sort of show it's like okay it's a comedy and i'm just going to be asked to do that brilliant off we go i've no problem with lower decks lower decks can do whatever they want because they've set that up but they didn't tell me i don't think at the start of picard bearing in mind they've got to deal with two seasons worth coming on the front of it as well they didn't tell me that this is one of those ones where it's going to be funny and you should just watch the special effects and that's why you're here. They told me it was a serious regathering of the old gang back together and it's Picard's finale. Well, in that case, no. You've told me this is going to be emotional. You've told me there's going to be a story here, a plot that I should pay attention to. So, no, I, I can't just sit back and enjoy the ride because it's not that type of show. But I, maybe that's what they thought they were writing. Oh, yeah, it's just fun stuff and explosions, and that's what they want, so we'll just give them that. Just bring out all the old characters. They'll love that, and we've done our job. We've done what we said we were going to do. Is that what you promised me in episode one? Because I'm, I'm not convinced it was. Well, writer interviews would suggest that they think they've done something really profound and deep and all that stuff. So I think what they're angling for is the prestige that you were getting out there rather than the, yeah, it's Lower Decks, it's a bit fun. But we also managed to do some serious stuff in that as well. I think Lower Decks 
hits that balance much better than Picard does, actually, because whenever they manage to do a serious plot, it works. Because what they've done is they've created characters that are a bit wacky, but they're also very good at their jobs. So whenever it's something like, we need to get through this asteroid field and rescue this ship in whatever time we have left, and then they come up with the idea of detaching the hull, it works because you never doubt that these people know what they're doing, even though they have a laugh about it. It's designed that way, but they also keep the stakes relatively low, but still meaningful, as in rescuing the ship. That's really important to the people on that ship, so I'm therefore willing to accept the fact that it's a, it's a significant problem. Rather than, we need to save the whole universe and all our kids have been assimilated. I have no connection to that whatsoever because it's just highfalutin nonsense. But the distinction between prestige and not prestige TV, I think, is something that Picard wrestled with since day one. I had an interesting discussion with someone where they pointed out that Star Trek is more in line with the CW than whatever HBO makes. Right. And they didn't mean that as an insult. They just meant that that's its lane. It's not in the same league as these like your Game of Thrones or your True Detectives or whatever else. Mm. It was a network TV show back in the day. Yeah. With 26 episodes, it wasn't aiming for that prestige moniker. And I was thinking, yeah, okay, let's assume the CW is more in line with what Star Trek is. And then I was thinking, no one who writes The Flash thinks they're writing True Detective, which seems to be the difference here. People working on those shows tend to know what they're working on, whereas it seems like the people working on Picard think they're writing something like True Detective. But they're not. They're actually writing something more like The Flash, which is a huge insult because The Flash is terrible as a TV show. But along those lines... The Flash as it was, maybe. Name any other CW TV show, one of the good ones. Superman and Lois. That's a good one. But no one working on Superman and Lois thinks they're writing top drawer appointment TV on the HBO because they know what they've been hired to do. And in a way, that lets them have more fun with it than you might get on True Detective, for example. Yeah. And I'm using True Detective as an example. I've seen one season of True Detective. It wasn't for me. So there's me playing my card of I'd rather watch The Flash than True Detective because that's just more my speed. But I do wonder if the writers shifted their mindset to we aren't writing those HBO dramas. So let's step back a bit and just allow ourselves to put less pressure on ourselves maybe. Maybe that's the generous way of saying it. That's where you really need to get into the interviews and see what people were doing at the start because it's the same thing for me as the was there any production pressure did somebody come along and ask someone to rewrite an episode at the last minute it would be really interesting to get that information behind the scenes to find this stuff out which we may never get no no maybe because not. they're convinced that they've written the best thing ever well potentially if you attend a convention in 10 years time and people are reflecting back maybe but yeah not now yeah another thing that was in daystrom was Moriarty, the hologram of Moriarty. I revisited my thoughts on this initially because I just thought it was that Moriarty that appeared in TNG that was running on a hard drive at the end. and They fooled him into thinking he was exploring the universe. But I think it was just a construct cooked up by Data to help Riker realise who was out there. I think Riker pretty much says as much. I think he works all this out, especially when he gets the... The whistled tune. It's kind of a throwaway line that you can miss, though, which is why I went down the route of... Yeah. It was a real Moriarty. Why is he here? I was thinking things like, first of all, what does he think of what happened to him? Because he should really hate these people. What you've got here, then, I think, is the difficulty of not trusting the writers and 
therefore that throws you off because once you're in your own mind you're not just feeling you're thinking you do lose all of this you do miss lines because your brain is worrying on other things i missed a lot of stuff i think in picard for that same reason i didn't have this emotional connection to the show early on and i've had this trouble with marvel i went through that process in early marvel films in the podcast if you could be bothered to go back that far you can hear me say things like i didn't understand this but i trust marvel to reveal what it is later it's dissonant now it doesn't make sense now but that's because it's a mystery and i don't understand but i'm invited to watch that play out and if you trust what you're watching you will but if you're in a position where you're already saying no don't like that not sure about this, I don't understand, then when you're given even a valid mystery, you're immediately challenging it. And that's a shame because that setup where Riker has to work something out could have been a valid mystery. There's something wrong here, but I trust the writers to show me an excellent Riker who will work it out when he sees the breadcrumbs he'll get to the end. And then when he does get to the end and you look back, you should have that reveal. Oh, yeah, that did mean that. It has that emotional impact on me. So I can't analyze that scene well enough now to say if it was actually good or not, because it might have been one of the most well-written parts of it. And the only reason it doesn't work for you is because you were so knocked already from trusting them that you couldn't see it from that angle. And maybe I'll never know because I'll never be able to get that perspective of not knowing from beforehand. But it could be an interesting exercise to watch that again and try and think, is this a clever mystery reveal or not? Well, I watched that a few times. I ended up standing by what I put in the review and talking about Moriarty as a presence, even though it probably wasn't that Moriarty. For all we know, that guy's still running on a hard drive somewhere, blissfully unaware that He's running on a hard drive. It's confusing that Data would conjure up that image to help Riker along because Riker was outside the holodeck when that episode was taking place. So there's no real significant connection to Moriarty from Riker's point of view. It does exist as a clue to help him zero in on the fact Data's there along with the bird because the bird is when he started dreaming. And then, as you say, the music. I did like when the note played. And what was that? F sharp, I think. Riker is perfect pitch, apparently. Fair enough. That's a good callback to his history as a musician. Well, yeah, that's a good reference. So I guess a better version of that scene would be Data knows that Riker and Worf are there. He doesn't know Rafi, so he can't do anything with her. But he could be guiding them to him by putting clues that remind them of their relationship to him. He could involve Worf in all that as well. Yes. So in that case, the idea is good, but the execution is poor because the idea is he's trying to make them as you say, think of him and guide him to him. But he used a reference that the production team thought was cool because we can get this actor back, but not that the plot or the writers creating the narrative would think is cool because it doesn't mean anything. So it evokes the wrong thought process. That is an example of something that maybe wasn't thought through well enough to become more than an Easter egg. Yeah. And the thing about Moriarty as well, it reminds me of, an example I always use when it comes to substantial versus meaningless fan service, and it's the use of the Iron Giant in Ready Player One. In Ready Player One, they use the Iron Giant. He's a giant killer robot, and that's all he is. In the Iron Giant movie, the point of that is he's a weapon that doesn't like being a weapon. So if you don't include that as part of your reference in Ready Player One, then the reference itself is meaningless. It could be anything. It could be any giant robot, because you're not attaching the substance to it. Yeah. So you have Moriarty there, and 
there's a connection that we can make as an audience because we've seen those episodes, but they're not making use of the substance of that reference in the episode itself. He turns up and says, I think, therefore I am, because you remember him saying that in Ship and a Ball. But that's it. There's nothing more to it. Actually, having Moriarty return as an episode point would be interesting because you can play with that he wants revenge angle because you tricked me and I managed to escape years later or Section 31 let me out years later to come after you for some reason and I really hate you for tricking me like that. That's too big a plot point. Like they could never use that to take over the whole thing. But yeah. It is, yeah. And if you were going to do a more episodic approach to Picard, it could be things like that them cleaning up after the mistakes they made. They could have done a totally different show, but yeah, they could have done. I mean, I wouldn't argue that that's a mistake. It's basically the only solution that you could come up with that everyone can live with at the time, I guess. But still, basically it means that that reference could have been anything. Yeah, it could. I don't know. It's one of Riker's holographic girlfriends, because we know he had them. (sighs) For all the worth it has. Something that was actually pointed out to me as a quick aside was at the end of the eighth episode where you have data back and everyone's really happy about it. If you watch Worf in that scene, he's not. He sits there and he sulks a bit. And apparently that was an ad-lib from Michael Dorn who thought that Worf wouldn't appreciate this resurrection because his Klingon beliefs are when someone's dead, they're gone. They can't come back. And this is not my friend. And they don't capitalise on that at all. That's just the actor knowing their character inside out. Obviously, there's no time to do anything, but you don't see Worf avoiding data or anything like that in the subsequent episodes. But I thought it was a nice little touch, actually. Well, it is a nice touch, but it's not wanted by the writing team because, as I will always say, the plot does not need that, darling. Get out of the way. Take your thoughts of your character and change them because you're a different wolf now. And I've already said, I think, what they did with Dwarf is horrendous in this, and I stand by it. I didn't mind much of this show. It didn't really impact on me. I didn't mind it. It's just... No, I think you could have done a lot better. But yeah, with Worf, it's just nonsense. And even when the actor tries to say, remember this character I used to play? The writers are still going to stomp all over it and say, no, we don't want that from you. You're the comedy character now. Can you stop doing serious things like that and callbacks? Do you not realize how you've been written now? So yeah, it's a nice thing that he put in, but he was just doomed. Not only was it not going to mix up with anything they got, it couldn't possibly match with anything they've got. Well, it doesn't stack with anything Worf does in any scene where Data appears, because he just quite clinically refers to what's been going on with Data and things. So, yeah, the writers had no intention of playing with that in any way. Oh, God. But Michael Dorn did, so that was something, at the very least. Yeah, fair play. But that would have been an interesting thing, with more time or more effort. It would have been perhaps an arc that ends with Worf saying... I don't accept you as data, but I accept you as something new, and that's not your fault. It wasn't even that. The whole point of them kind of stomping over that, it wasn't data. The idea that they call that person data is really weird because it's law. They actually managed to deny somebody their entire identity just because they want their old friend back. Now, that's actually quite human. You could even explore that, and he has to keep reminding them, by the way, I'm law. Can you not call me Data, please? That's a bit offensive. But no, they started their plot in episode nine instead of episode three, whereas where it should have been, and then they would have had an extra six episodes. Well, they could have done something daft like calling Data Lore. I mean, they could have done that, yeah. That was a reference to the, the episode where Lore was introduced. Yeah. But he could have called himself that as a kind of amalgamation of the two entities. That would have been, again, something. And then that idea calls back to Worf's approach to Esri when she turned up in Deep Space Nine in the final season. Jadzia Dax was dead, and as far as Worf was concerned, she was gone, and that's something he has to deal with. And then he has this, from his perspective, pretender turn up mm. and try to be Dax. And it's a lack of understanding of how the whole Trill thing works, I suppose, or 
a lack of emotional understanding, at least. And then Worf goes through an arc where by the end of the season, he comes to accept Esri as being who she is. She's not the person he lost, but she is someone that can be important to him for a different reason. Character arcs and development journeys, who'd have thought? Yeah, and you could have that with Worf and this version of Data as well, but they don't. Even that sort of thing is now considered old writing, I think. You don't get a lot of character arcs now. It is more important to have your hero turn up and just be awesome and destroy the evil. Well, we discussed earlier that Picard and Riker can't even be at odds for more than five minutes. There seems to be this aversion to actual meaningful conflict that ends up being resolved or perhaps never resolved. Because we used to see it in things where people would sometimes just agree to disagree. We're never going to see eye to eye on this issue. Let's just stop talking about it. No, but modern writing has really embraced that idea of there is one correct thing, and that is what we do. There is nothing that goes against that now. The heroes aren't allowed to go against that now. Well, we discussed that with Steve Rogers and Tony Stark when Joss Whedon was writing them. They were constantly butting heads, and they would never agree with one another. But by the time you get to Endgame, they're on the same page about a lot of things. But the basis of that relationship is that they could never see eye to eye on these sorts of things because Steve Rogers is a soldier that always wants to be in the fight and Tony Stark wants to end the fight. At the very core of who they are, those things can't mesh, but they end up finding that middle ground somehow, even though they shouldn't. Like you were saying about fan service and things, that's a general problem with media at the moment. They seem to be afraid of ongoing conflict because I guess that encourages the audience to take sides and they don't want to not like one of their characters or not agree with one of their characters. I think they just don't want to risk upsetting everybody. Everybody's aligning to the current movement. And the thing of it is, I am not somebody that wants to be challenging the new social movement, because when you think about it, the new social movement that we're dealing with at the moment is actually trying to do good things. And why would you challenge something that's trying to do good things? That's not a hill I want to die on. I don't want to destroy this new movement just because I disagree with its methodologies. I want to support the new movement, but I find some of its methodologies to be pretty much like a religious crusade. And one of the most important parts of a religious crusade is that we know we're right and everything against us is definitely wrong. That's why we get to destroy it. And I do feel like there's this need in some of modern writing to align yourself with the crusade. And therefore, certain things are not allowed. You just cannot have any of your heroes going against it because that officially makes them the enemy. And so you can't afford to have Picard or Riker labeled as the enemy because therefore they're going to see so much hate online. I can't believe Riker did this. He must be cancelled, destroyed and removed already. And you could even see the actors getting hate mail because of it, which is just horrendous. So it is a shame something that is aiming to do such good is taking such a lot of bad feeling and doing such a lot of damage with it. But I honestly do not believe production companies would dare to leave the central line because of the hate they'd receive online for it. It's not a risk. It would essentially remove some of their income. Well, we've discussed before about, yes, it's great that we're getting more female characters taking prominent roles and things but it's pointless when they arrive fully formed with nothing to learn or nothing to achieve. Cassie and Quantumania being our most recent example that we discussed. Absolutely. She doesn't have to learn anything. No. Because she already knows it. It's a symptom of that problem, isn't it? It's not the exact example you were discussing, but it's part of it. 
It is part and parcel of it, yes. And there's a danger now that if you showed somebody in a main role as having to learn a lesson, then you would be considered a bigot because you dared to employ that somebody wasn't good in whatever state they're in because you have to accept everybody as they are. Now, that wouldn't be what you're doing at all. In fact, for millennia, we've accepted that storytelling is something that shows the main character going on a journey. It's just this common language that has been used. As I say, for literally millennia, the idea that that is suddenly wrong, that that idea is suddenly a form of bigotry is just weird. But it is there. You're absolutely right on that. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. If I challenge a female role in a film, I will promise to our audience right here and now, it's not because she's a woman. It's the writer that I'm challenging, not the character. I think the writer could have done a better job. Yeah. And the thing is, there are arcs of a sort and development points in this. Picard realising that Jack is the missing piece that he didn't have in his life, or Riker getting his spark back and moving on somewhat from his son's death, things like that. But on the whole, there seems to be a reluctance to commit to actually having these characters have issues that they have difficulty resolving. Worf not accepting that Dea's back would be one of them. Picard and Riker disagreeing over their command styles would be another. Well, absolutely. And I think it's our challenge of the characters here and the writers here that shows that that's what it is for both of us. Because... It's also Picard, it's also Riker, it's also Worf, it's also Geordie. Name all the male characters that you've got and say, well, they're also not getting, as you say, character arcs. It's not a gender thing at all. It's just where are the character arcs? Where are the learns? Where are the people having to overcome, as you say, with Jack? He doesn't really need to do anything more than flick a switch. Jack's an object in this plot. He's not a person, he's an object. And that's such a shame to see that. Yeah, it's kind of covered up a bit by how good Ed Spielers actually is, but he is a plot device. Yeah, plot device is the better word. He's used as an object. He still acted well. He's still somebody that is a human being to see, but the plot treats him as an object. And not to bring everything back to Doctor Strange, but that's why I was so offended by America Chavez's character. It's not that the actress couldn't act. It's just that the plot treated her like another book of Vishanti. That's all she was. She never got to do anything or be anything. They could have done that entire film with America Chavez as just being an object that Doctor Strange and Wanda were fighting over. We both want the book of Chavez, and whoever gets to use it at the end wins. It nothing to do with the actress. She was perfectly capable and, and likable. But the writers abused her in that plot, as you say. Another plot device. It's quite horrendous to see and didn't like it in Jack either. So back to fan service. The Fleet Museum, we had a few callbacks to things. There was almost a slideshow, actually, of here's some ships that you'll remember. Here's the Enterprise A. Here's an old school Constitution class that isn't the Enterprise, but it looks like the Enterprise. So that's fine. That's enough to trigger that part of your brain. Here's Voyager, here's the Defiant, and if you pause and look in the background, you'll see other ships that we remember from way back, including the NX-01 from Enterprise, but it's the now canonised refit version that they were going to do in Season 5 that didn't get made, where they added the Star Drive section. So that's there. I have mixed feelings about the Fleet Museum, actually, because in a better show that wasn't bombarding you with fan service, it's something that I'd be totally okay with. Let's just have a bit of fun with remembering the past. It's the frequency of it and it's the intensity of it that I take particular issue with. Basically, you're trying to disguise your crappy plot with constant fan service by reminding me of previous Star Trek things 
you're trying to distract me from the fact that you've not actually come up with something interesting here. But if it was an interesting season, we had one episode where we had a bit of a Starship slideshow, I'd be loving it. Because you'd kind of earn that break, I guess. If they'd have done, as I said before, start the plot in episode three instead of episode nine, and if they'd have rescued the Enterprise because of this whole networking problem as the only way they could act in episode three, then they could have had the fan service by bringing the Enterprise back, and then every other ship would have just been an Easter egg. And those people that wanted to just follow the plot would have just been like, station, Enterprise, warp. We're fine, move me the plot on. And then anybody like yourself that is the sort of person who wants to, wait a minute, pause that scene, I am going to find every Easter egg on here, Klingon ship, Enterprise, this, that, and the other ship. They can get that extra enjoyment with that pause button, and that would have answered both needs well. Yeah, and I actually do think that some of the attention being drawn to the ships there was meaningful, such as Seven talking about Voyager and discussing her connection to it with Jack. That works because it's a reminder, I suppose, of Seven's arc, as in she doesn't have a family and really wants one and remembers the time that she did have one when she was on Voyager. So that's meaningful because she's looking at that home that she once had and she's thinking, I would really like that again. Bringing us back to the so-called theme of the series of family that really wasn't explored, as you say, it was an attempt to explore that theme, but we sort of missed it because it wasn't prominent and used. Yeah. And then you have the Klingon ship, the bounty from Star Trek Four. That's meaningful because we're going to steal the cloaking device. Which even bothered me in itself because I was thinking, surely that breaks a whole bunch of treaties, that it's here stealable and the cloaking device is available even if there's no Klingon treaty anymore then you've got the Romulans or even if there's no Romulan treaty anymore you've got the Klingons it sort of doesn't matter which way round you go yeah, I guess the Klingons didn't want their bird of prey back I mean yeah there's so much that your brain starts to think but wait a minute and even if you get around one barrier you're still going to come up against another one yeah it's also the fact that it's a museum so these ships would effectively be shells so why isn't anything of value being ripped out. It's a bit like with the Enterprise D, where Jordy says, Worf, I've got drones loading torpedoes as we speak. And I'm thinking, why does a museum have torpedoes? Why have you got a supply of weapons in your fleet museum? One of those logical issues, isn't it? Well, I mean, I can give it the answer if you want. It's a simple, the plot needed it, darling. That's all it is. But at least the display of the bounty led to something. Whether it made sense or not, that's a separate issue, but it led to something. Sure, fair enough. Pointing at the Defiant doesn't because it means nothing here, really. That's where Worf is there, and he would be like, I love that ship, or something like that, because he had a connection to the Defiant. Well, that's not even the original Defiant. The original one was destroyed. So it's the second Defiant. The NX-1 being there, they don't draw attention to it, actually, but one thing I was thinking about was when they did Frontier Day and it was the Enterprise F doing the flyby, why not have that be the NX-1? Because that's what they're there to celebrate, the birth of Starfleet. Well, indeed, but you're being asked to not look behind the curtain here, so just have to ignore that and moving on. It just seems to be an easy thing to do, though, isn't it? We've pointed out this thing is here, and we have this celebration happening in the background, or in the foreground eventually. Well, I've said a few times, this is the easy plot. Wind back this very podcast, and I've said that this is the easy thing. This is the object that's already on the table in front of you. Why aren't we using it? All of those have been passed over. And I'd have been okay with that as an example of fan service as well, because it would have made sense in the context of that celebration. True. We're celebrating the anniversary of the day the Enterprise launched. And here it is. Absolutely, yeah. Of course, it couldn't be controlled by Borg, because it's not networked. Or maybe it is networked for the purposes of 
this demonstration. Could have been, yeah. Why not? I guess you'd have to dust off the set. <laughs> so the Fleet Museum, I was okay with it for the most part because it didn't take up too much time. Like I say, in a better version of the season, I would have been far more okay with it because it would have been a nice diversion in the middle of the plot and it would have been an earned piece of, oh, look, all this stuff that I remember, that's nice. Rather than the whole season just being that. Yeah. At the Frontier Day celebration, you had the Enterprise F, which was designed for the game Star Trek Online and is now made canon for the first time. Yeah. Easter egg, fair enough. Yeah, cool. And then captaining it is Admiral Shelby, who was in the Best of Both Worlds. She showed up to help them deal with the Borg, and then she's apparently killed in this. However, Terry Metallis has said on Twitter that she's not dead, which just baffles me, the fact that you have to look at what the showrunner says on Twitter to figure out what's actually happening. Yeah, well, didn't leave anywhere near enough time for it. Like I said, start in episode three, not in episode nine. You've got time for this stuff. You don't have to do it in Twitter afterwards. Fans kicked off because they felt like Shelby shouldn't have been killed so unceremoniously. You think the showrunner should just stick to his guns? Yes, we killed her. Deal with it. (laughs) You don't have to like it, but we did it. No, but they haven't earned the trust of the audience well enough for that sort of thing. Because if you do kill somebody and you do it well, then people don't complain. They're upset. But if somebody goes out in a big heroic action, which Roe technically got, but I'm not convinced it was actually executed well enough. But if you do give them that, people don't bring the hate on Twitter. They just bring their upset on Twitter. And that's fine. There's the emotion. Oh, it meant something. It moved me. Good thing. He also said that Roe was supposed to have survived somehow and she'd be found at the same time Tuvok was found. Whatever. Yeah, moving on. So you're just rendering her sacrifice meaningless at the same time as well. Exactly, yeah. His approach to death is a bit of a strange one. He doesn't seem to accept the fact that characters get to die. No. I'm sure Shaw and Shelby will end up in the hall of Starfleet captains in Daystrom and be revived in some way. Zombie trick. No one gets to die. It's just the way it is. The Enterprise D, that's the other big one. I don't know if you thought about this at the same time, but I kept thinking about the ship of Theseus when it was introduced. Because Geordi says, yeah, the engines and nacelles, they're from the Syracuse. So it's the saucer, but it's also been completely refitted. Everything's been swapped out. Everything's been replaced. So is it the same ship? There's an interesting thought experiment. Fair enough. I didn't think of it because I just assumed that the walls and the computers are the same and the ready rooms and are all the same. So I didn't have a full ship of Theseus moment there. I see your point, but it, it wouldn't matter if they just use it for the room where they have a discussion around the table. It wouldn't have been a big deal. Yeah. And in the life cycle of these ships anyway, everything's swapped out and replaced as they go. They're constantly getting refit. You see subtle changes in the sets from season to season and then more so in generations as well when they added more stuff to the bridge for the film. I'm not saying it bothered me. I was just thinking about the ship of Theseus, especially because it came up in one division fairly recently. Yeah. Just the idea of when you make changes to a thing, is it the same thing? The other example of is the philosopher Locke, his socks. If you keep mending a sock, is it the same sock? Or for the British listeners among us, Trigger's broom from Only Fools and Horses. Yes. The idea that you replace the head and the handle so many times. It's not the same broom, is it? Well, no, it is because I've replaced the components at different times. Just an interesting one. But the production design was good on that, actually. If, apparently, if you pause, you can read the name Syracuse on the secondary hull. And there's a slight colour difference between the saucer and the star drive section, which backs up the fact that Geordi wasn't finished yet. Right. And there's still scorch marks on the saucer as well from the attacking generations. But I do also quite like the idea of Geordi just sitting there chipping away at restoring a starship like a classic car. Over 20 years. I'm guessing he must have used drones a lot because doing that yourself would be impossible. 
yeah, of course. But that was the callback I really liked. And actually, it was one of the few times in the season I felt something when they went back aboard that bridge and they were all basking in the glow of being there. True, yeah, cool. I don't know if that had that kind of impact on you, but that bit worked. I guess I was too far out of a emotional connection to feel it so i appreciate that it happens but i can say no i missed it i was probably too much in my head yeah i think a combination of the score and the visuals and everything else made it really work also you had wharf complaining about the weapons that was a nice touch well the defiance over there wharf off you go that's your ship you can use that so lots of fan service then Mm. we've been promised that they want to do a follow-up show to this the hashtag Star Trek Legacy. There's even a fan petition for it that has a lot of signatures. More signatures than the one for Strange New Worlds had before they commissioned it, actually. So a lot of people want this. Based on what we've been given here, do you want to see a Star Trek Legacy show with Seven, Jack, Raffi, Sydney, and whoever else? Based purely on this, then no, I'm not in few because it's not done enough to inspire me in the capabilities of the writers. I wouldn't want to see another mystery plot where they reserve the plot until episode nine. Not that the characters themselves aren't interesting. I could happily see the characters, but the writing and production teams haven't inspired me to want to watch their work anymore. I don't want to see Jack replay Picard's trial with Q. That's just nonsense. Again, that's another problem of the we can't seem to let go of the past. Jack can't have his own story. He has to repeat Picard's. Yeah. And it renders a lot of season two quite pointless. Not that it wasn't already, but Q died in that season. And then he just shows up and says, oh, don't be so linear. And then that's it. I'm okay with that because uh, being of his power, that makes perfect sense to me that he could wander around and keep it all in his own mind. I couldn't keep my thoughts and feelings straight by doing different things at different points that way. But the idea that Q does it, that doesn't bother me at all. It might be a bit jarring because he's never seemed to go outside of linear thinking himself in the previous plots. He's never arrived out of order in the past. No, but given who he is, if you think about it, that's actually perfectly reasonable for him to suddenly start doing that. And maybe it's part of his new scheme. So it's one of those ones whereby something is slightly dissonant. But if you trust the writers to make something of it, cool, fine. And there's my problem. I don't know that I trust the writers to make something of it. No. And like I say, it's just the repetition of this trial. We've already had that with Mm. Picard and Q. I think I would have liked it a bit more. I don't think the scene needed to be there at all, but if it did, it would have been better to have Q's son show up. I hear you're Picard's son, and my father had a lot of fun with your father, so I'm going to see what we can do. Because we know Q has a son from Voyager. That might have worked a bit better. That would have certainly punctuated the idea of legacy. Probably a bit too on the nose for me, but I can see that it could have been. As opposed to all the other stuff that was really subtle. Yeah. I like these characters, but yeah, I don't think they've given me enough to commit to wanting to see the setup as it is. The Titan being renamed as Enterprise G was very on the nose. It possibly would have made more sense if they'd been the USS Picard. Yes. Because that would have really tied into the names mean almost everything line that Jack had. Yeah, I could have gone with that. That would have also been a good finale for everything they'd have been doing. I think my bigger problem is simply with the characters that would go on got nothing really to work with. Raffi didn't have any great development. Seven really doesn't get too much to do. And in the final scene where you get to see the culmination of all of their work, they fly around and are ineffectual. So they've been downplayed throughout the season 
and at the end they don't achieve anything. So this fanfare that they could have got from which you'd be inspired to see more of them is just this nothing tiny little noise of no great meaning. So the writers don't even really encourage me to want to see them by giving them some cool moments. So it's not in there in the deep writing, but it's not necessarily even on the surface. Yeah. I mean, what was Sydney other than Geordie's daughter? Yeah. And Jack, I suppose he's practically a blank slate now. But like I say, he's going to just do the trial thing with Q. Not really interested in that. Seven, has she found a place? Is she still looking for one? We don't really know. Rafi, we don't know an awful lot about her. So I suppose from the point of view of there's nowhere to go but up with these people because their own show would give them the chance to just build on nothing, really. They could start anywhere. Well, they've tidied a few things away too neatly as well. Because in theory, Seven is now at the head of her own new family because she's a captain. So on paper that works, but it's on paper, I don't feel it. Rafi's situation has been completely tied up with a neat little bow. She has no problems anymore. Whereas her follow-up could have been, yes, you're a hero, but you still don't have your family. That's where I have to go from here. I now have to take what I've learned and apply it to my own family such that I can get them back. So that's gone. Jack could have had lingering Borg trouble, but it's sort of tied it up and gone. They've replaced it with Q. They haven't really left themselves anything. They are going to have to, as you say, start again completely new but if you're going to do a link between this year's and next year's maybe it would have been easier if you'd have left some breadcrumbs to follow yeah and seven being appointed to captain that didn't really sit right with me it didn't feel right in that moment because one thing that was really weird and you won't have this connection but her promotion is almost identical to michael burnham's promotion in discovery she has a conversation with an admiral in discovery who says you don't follow the rules you don't respect protocol but you get the job done your way And that's why you should be captain. I'm thinking that's why she shouldn't be captain, because you'd think captains should have some respect for authority and protocol. Not that they shouldn't be autonomous in any way. They have to make their own decisions when they're out there and under pressure and things like that. But I would think that we know you have no respect for protocol, so therefore we're going to promote you would be a bizarre reasoning to do it. But Seven gets told that, and so does Michael Burnham. The interesting thing, though, is fans seem to react to Seven's promotion more favourably but not Burnham's. Because there seems to be a bizarre hatred for Michael Burnham in sections of the fandom. In some ways it's not undeserved because they do write her as the saviour of the universe sometimes. But I don't think she deserves all the hate she gets at the same time. But I didn't agree with her promotion to captain for the same reasons that I don't agree with Seven's promotion to captain. Because what Tuvok does is lists all the ways that she shouldn't be captain, or Shaw does, and then she gets made captain anyway. And Shaw's speech is something like, I'm too old-fashioned, maybe the book needs rewritten. I just don't get it. I don't know how you felt about that as a rationale for her being promoted, but I just didn't get it. I've seen it so many times, I think, that I've just become slightly inured to it. It feels like the same thing Riker went through. It just doesn't seem special anymore, to be honest, because everybody who challenges the norm in that way is eventually accepted that they're the right thing. Therefore, it's actually the valid way of going through Starfleet. It just feels like it's normal now. Everybody must do that. So I'm not in any way emotionally moved by it if literally every officer moves from first officer to captain in the same way. By showing disrespect for the chain of command. Yeah, that's just the way Starfleet works, so I'm not impressed anymore. But it's bizarre because we've had it in the past where people got punished for going against orders. Kirk, for example, steals the Enterprise in Star Trek 3 and he gets demoted from Admiral to Captain in Star Trek 4. 
which turns out to be the best thing for him because he hates being an admiral and wants to be a captain. Yes. Fine, but that is punishment. He doesn't get to be an admiral anymore. Yeah. Whereas people get rewarded for being disobedient now, which is what you were saying. Yeah. It's just weird. It does take away from Starfleet as this realistic organisation where hard work and merit gets you those rewards, gets you those promotions. Yes. I do like the idea of people standing up for something they believe in and being punished for it, but still being secure that they were in the moral right place. In this case, it was a slightly different idea because that disobedience ended up saving the Federation. But Seven didn't know that at the time. She just disobeyed Shaw's orders because Picard and Riker were there and she respected them over him. So it's not that she made a moral choice because the greater good was at stake. This is one of those ones where I think analysing it in great detail doesn't get you anywhere at all because it's another one where the plot needed it. You could go into infinite detail on this, but the actual answer, I'm pretty sure, is just as simple as we needed the character to be this way, but we needed to be pro the character at the end. That's all it is. Trying to go into any great detail of analysis on that is going to take you into things that just weren't considered or wanted in the writing. Yeah, apparently that scene with Tuvok, they wanted it to be Janeway, but they couldn't make it happen for budgetary or availability reasons. Mm. It would have made more sense if it was Janeway because Tuvok's a captain and promotes Seven to captain. I don't think captains have that authority. It was good seeing Tuvok nevertheless. That was a bit of fan service I was okay with, and a nice callback to Voyager. And his earlier appearance was the only time the Changelings did something smart. Let's pose as the people that these people might reach out to. Yes. Good idea, Changelings. It's a shame you tip your hand very easily. Aye. Don't do your research into what planets Vulcans hate and things like that. Never mind. That's what it is. But I think that's us, isn't it? Let's get to some wrap-up thoughts. So what are your wrap-up thoughts on this season? Maybe throw in a couple of things you did like, because I think we've been heavily critical. And I'll try and do the same in mine. Unfortunately, most of my wrap-up thoughts are I was pretty neutral. I didn't necessarily hate everything about it, but I just didn't really bond with it. So if I'm trying to find good things that I like, I will pick out odd little moments like I think we've covered already, which was Data making the moral choice to give in, but in doing so improves lore and makes him a better person in the process. So he fights in a real pacifist way. And I recapture maybe the moral choices of Star Trek that I used to watch. So I'll offer that as something I liked. And I might struggle to find other little bits and bombs that I liked that were any more meaningful. I will say that the thing I remember most is Riker and Picard making some we're old men jokes. They're such a tiny part of the plot. So it's crazy to think of that being one of my best and most enjoyable moments. I mean, I did enjoy, or rather I did intellectually appreciate the plot when it turned up in season nine for what it could have been, because the Borg taking over Picard is something he never dealt with. And as you're moving towards the end of your life, making sense of it all and overcoming all of your past traumas is this big deal. And it would have made an excellent final season for the character Picard to turn around and face that. Equally, like I said, with him facing the idea that his brother and nephew were killed and he has to carry on the Picard name. It came up that one time in that film and it clearly rocked him to his core. And he has a conversation with Deanna about it. 
And those two things then as being the finale for Picard are amazing choices. There's just the right choice for the two big traumatic things and nothing to do with the childhood remembrances of his parents that they had to make up, but things that we've actually seen in STNG as was before. So the things that I liked are the things that were tiny, the little additions, but the thing that I really would have liked this final send-off for Picard. I didn't really get to see it because it was crammed into two episodes. So I'm always going to come back to that it potentially for me was just a big shame that they didn't give me, again, with seasons one and two, what I wanted, what I thought. That doesn't make it bad. It's just that I guess it wasn't for me. The only thing that I want to register as something that I thought was truly awful was what they did to Worf because they wrecked the character, I think, by turning him into the comedy. Now, you've said he's always been that way in the film. So for your average viewer, maybe that's what they've come to expect for Wolf. So even that, I can't say as much of a betrayal because apparently that's who he is. But it bothered me a lot to see that. So overall, just nonplussed. I've stopped watching Star Trek. I stopped watching Discovery. I didn't watch Strange New Worlds. I may get something out of the one with the kids that I've already forgotten the name of. Prodigy. I mean, I could get something out of Prodigy, maybe, but I'm not in any way inspired to want to pursue Star Trek anymore. It seems to have moved into a history for me. And every time I try and watch something, I don't connect with it. So it's entirely possible, yeah, that Prodigy would be this amazing thing that would bring me back. But it's like, oh no, I'm sorry, I've tried too many times. I'm just not interested. So it seems like such a shame to me Star Trek is gone. You still watch Lower Decks though, don't you? I do watch Lower Decks, but that's a comedy. That's a different thing. That's not Star Trek. It's still valid, though. Yeah, it is still Star Trek, but it's not Star Trek in the form that I know it. It's a comedy. It's a riff on what used to be. It couldn't exist by itself because it riffs on what's come before. I will have real trouble when Lower Deck starts to riff on the modern series because I won't be able to understand the jokes anymore and I won't be able to get the fun. I'll lose connection with it for that way. So even that feels like a bit of a parting shot. I don't think there'll be any danger of it moving into that territory. I think it's going to stick to being reverent to the Behrman era. In which case I'll watch it, but it might be the only Star Trek I watch just because of this loss of connection. I don't hate it, but I really do feel like it's moved on and, and I'm not part of the audience anymore. You may enjoy Strange New Worlds. I might do, but like I say, they put Discover in front of me and I just sort of went, eh, okay, fair enough. I've gone bored and wandered off. And then they put Picard in front of me. And, oh, okay, yeah, fine but I've gotten bored and wandered off. I don't want to do homework. I don't want to have to watch all of these shows on the off chance that I'm going to like something. I actually get much more enjoyment out of my viewing time when I get the chance watching other things. And so I I don't feel like I owe it. I don't owe Star Trek this. So yeah, maybe, but I'm, I'm watching other things that I'm enjoying more. So I've gone. It's just the nature of there being so much TV out there. That's all. Well, Strange New Worlds is a bit more old school in terms of actually episodic. Every episode is an episode of television where they go do a thing. And there's character continuity between the episodes sometimes that give it that sense of cohesion. Maybe you'll give it a go one day, maybe you won't. I don't know. This is the thing. I've got this choice. I could be watching episodes of Andor or could have been watching episodes of a Star Trek that I haven't seen yet. I was always going to pick Andor. That's just the way that was going to be. And if I ever get to the point where I've got literally nothing to watch, even then I'm more likely to turn on YouTube because... Star Trek hasn't connected with me, or I haven't connected with it. So in the battle for my attention, 
it's losing. That doesn't make it awful. I mean, I hate it, but there's just there's so much out there. So something's going to lose. It's a shame, but it, it is the way it is. Yeah. For me, most of what I liked about this series were small moments. I talked about this earlier in the podcast. Little character moments, little well-acted scenes mm. that I enjoyed. One that I didn't reference was where Data came in to tell Picard something and asked him if he wanted to say something comforting, and Picard says that would be impossible. And Data's response is to put his hand on his shoulder. That was a really nice moment. It gives you an idea of the evolution of let's call him Data for the sake of simplicity, but the evolution of that character, he now understands that maybe that's all that I can do on an emotional level in this moment. Nice moment. Fine. I also quite like the running gag about how nobody seems to like Picard's wine. He gifts a bottle to Shaw in the first episode, and Shaw's like, I don't drink wine. I like whiskey. Later on, Worf criticises the bottle of sour meat he gets gifted every year, and in order to prove that he's not a changeling, Picard references... Jordy's opinion of his wine and that it's nonsense because his taste in wine is pedestrian. That was a good little running gag, but again, that's just a running gag. And it's a running gag that isn't actually tied up in a past reference to some Next Generation thing. I guess other than the fact that the vineyard is introduced in the Next Generation. But it was just moments, little scenes that I enjoyed. Also, I liked episode four. I don't think it's the best episode of Star Trek ever made, but it's a competent made episode of television which i can't really say for an awful lot of this stuff some of the fan service i liked some of it i didn't but i was overall overwhelmed by the intensity of it and the fact that they were constantly telling me hey you like star trek here's more things that remind you of star trek you had the cameo from chekhov for example chekhov's son anton chekhov which is a nice tribute to anton yelchin who unfortunately died Mm. the younger chekhov from the J.J. Abrams era films, but also even he was repeating the same do not approach Earth thing from Star Trek 4. And he also says, I think my father would have said, do you think anyone really cares what Pavel Chekhov would have said? Historically, he's probably not all that significant. I kind of want to know what Anton Chekhov has to say as the President of the Federation. I don't need that callback. The fact that it's Walter Koenig's voice is itself enough of a callback. It's all this stuff. I think Star Trek really needs to get away from this and forge ahead and do something new and we're not getting that here picard was never going to be that i suppose because it was the revival of an old character that we thought we said goodbye to turns out in hindsight i was kind of okay with nemesis being it as underwhelming as nemesis is but it's kind of okay with it because you can kind of make your peace with it as in it's just in an era where things end sometimes and you just never really get that closure you've had that a lot with some things where they just brought it back to revive it and then you wish they hadn't i'm struggling to think of any major examples of things that we brought back but there's so many of them and i guess this is just one of them i don't know that it will make a massive impact on anybody i think it will be something that people forget about in a few years because i don't think the ending felt as definitive as it probably should have the poker game was nice i guess as a conclusion and the enterprise d going to its final resting place at the fleet museum was quite nice as well she always took care of us etc i thought that was quite nice as a moment, and Gene Roddenberry's ethos was that the ship should always be a character in the show. Funnily enough, I think the character that they gave the best closure to was the Enterprise D, apart from its bizarre fighter pilot manoeuvres. I have said something positive about the show in my wrap-up after slamming it for the past few hours, but I wasn't keen on this at all, really. I think that there was a lot of wasted potential, a lot of wasted opportunities, and just a lot of 
arrogance on the part of the writers thinking they know what people want to see when these things wrap up and in fairness they're kind of right where some fans are concerned but I wonder if that euphoria will wear off and then the problems will come evident to everybody that's been praising it unanimously bit of distance bit of hindsight I think the cracks will start to show but we'll only know that in a few years once the dust settles won't we Aye. so anyway that was our discussion about Picard season 3 I want to thank Captain Meat Shield for the supplied music and Aaron, thank you for joining for this very long conversation. It's the best catharsis I could have hoped for to get this out of my system because, as we talked about, I love Star Trek. Next Generation was my Star Trek. I loved it, revisited it, I've watched it again and again and again and again and again. And I really wanted decent closure on it. If that's what they were planning to do, I really wanted it to be definitive. But the only thing I can come away from this thinking is I felt nothing. Just nothing. That's really disappointing. What a way to end. Yeah, it is. But yeah, thank you for helping me to resolve this. We've had some therapy sessions for you on various podcasts in regards to different things. Yeah, Doctor Strange was one for me. The treatment of Star Wars for me. So yeah, fair play. If you like what you heard here, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, and any of those that have an in-app or in-browser or whatever rating system, we would appreciate a rating. And Aaron, final changeling test, how many stars should these people give us? They should give us as many as they think we've earned. Okay, I do believe that you are who you say you are. Exactly. Unless you're changeling that, counter to the other changelings in this show, have actually researched their target before replacing them. That seems unlikely. Yeah. Also a comment as well. Please do let us know if you liked what we had to say. If you want to reach out to us, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog or leave comments on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. Engage. <laughs>